Preface. If you let your mind wander back through history, you will find that the only thing that has not changed since the world began is podcasts. So is that what you're going to have to do? Podcast is the unchanging axis on which the world resolves. Don't say it like that. Don't say it like that. I'm, I'm is not, that the thing you're going to have to do? I might mix it up every fucking episode. I was just wondering. This is a question people have. What people will you have been do? Having this question. A dialogue-free miniseries? And I think there are multiple ways around it. Ben is pantomiming right now. And in certain episodes, I might describe his pantomime and put the word podcast into my description. Other episodes, I might use an establishing card like this. Other times, I might do a tagline. I don't want you to know where I'm going. Oh, you want... To be totally unpredictable. Here. Yes, absolutely. I support you. Thank you. I wasn't saying that. Just Comedic mentally. invention. I want to have mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. sense of spontaneity. But of course, the podcast is the unchanging axis in which the world resolves. We all know that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great prologue to um, Three Ages. You know what more movies should start with? Titles about love being Father in the axis. Time himself. <laughs> yes, just that's... one solitary shot of Father Time sitting there. I do think Father Time is yeah he is un, not in the world of IP and yes. uh, you know heroes the and song iconic yeah we don't we don't bring in Father Time <laughs> anymore. You data you could talk. Name please. me a movie in which Father Time is not a silent character. Uh, Doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah no it's true he's always showing. You know what up. I'm saying? Like he's up there with God where you could basically start any movie with Father Time just tapping on his watch <laughs> and being like when are we starting this thing? But like why did we drop Father Time? Is he too similar to, like, you know, God, like, sort of generic God, and it got mixed up? This is what I like about him. I'm like, this is, he's non-denominational, you know? Yes, exactly. We can all buy in on this guy. This is, here's another classic white dude with long beard and white flowing hair I mean, did you, did either of you see the awful Alice in Wonderland sequel, um, Alice Through the Looking Glass? Of course, where Sasha Baron Cohen plays time. Sasha Baron Cohen is basically playing father time in that. Yes. Is he in an old man beard? He no, he has a beard. He's a mechanical uh, clockwork man. Yeah, he's sort no. of a clock man. Yes, I remember that being one of the more fun because it's a time travel he's, movie, right? He's good enough. Yeah, he's one of the more locked in parts. Of I that feel like we've had this movie. argument because uh, Dana, we unfortunately uh, cast a spell on ourselves, a curse, uh, and had to cover Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland on this podcast. Still, I think the worst movie we've ever discussed. I mean, maybe you love that film. I was just going to say, you went back for more after the first Tim Burton no, we did. I mean, Wonderland? We well, did not. You like, had we, to cover it as a critic. I think I covered it as a critic. And then yes. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it later, years later on Disney+. Plus. And it's, it's one better. of those things. But it's one of those things where it's you're not like, good. it right. is better, but it is less essential. So everything the movie gains from being slightly better than the first movie, it loses by being a sequel to Alice in Wonderland, a thing that should have never happened. True. This is a terrible way to start. But Sasha Baron Cohen's good in it. I just want to say, I'm pulling up, I just pulled up here, the three ages, the one shot of Father Time, okay? This is, we're talking about two movies today. It's a blank check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want and sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they let's try and do foley work is that bouncing yeah i don't know i didn't have what a rubber about, ball like, on you could have just done that i want to make it sound like he was like falling down that's the classic origin story of buster keaton you're gonna have to tell me falling down we'll get the, we'll get that in a sec we've got a whole itinerary of things to get through here so you what did you fell out of your chair is that what happened? Yes. Down a flight of stairs. Down a flight of stairs. Okay, great. 
we installed a staircase in the office just for this. Just for moment, this. Right? We're gonna do a lot of gags and stunts in this series, and they're all gonna be physical. We're visual. definitely gonna say gag a lot. We're gonna say gag. And We're gonna talk. say gag way more than we usually do. It's gonna be the most gag-heavy series we've ever done. It's the it's the films of Buster Keaton. Mm-hmm. Who had a very long career, but this main series is focused on the Buster Keaton Productions run, his wild run in the twenties, where he had basically complete artistic freedom for 10 films. Uh, and then we're going to cover the first two MGM movies, which were the beginning of the end for him, uh, at least in terms of his golden period. The main series is called Podcast Junior. That's right. You said that was the only pick, and I, I, I support it. It's the only pick. We're doubling up these films because they're short. Yep. So today we're talking Three Ages, and we're talking Our Hospitality, his first two directorial Features. Features, right? Would you agree, Dana? These are his first two full features. Yeah, I mean, he had been making films at this point already for six years or so, but yeah, they were all shorts and not independent until 1920, so this is really him busting into feature-length comedy. Hey, busting. Busting in. Uh, And then uh, Saphead is his first feature film as an actor, but that's him being hired as an actor. Yeah, which is why that tends to drop out of retrospectives and Keaton filmographies and things like that. People forget about it, even though it's worth watching with a really remarkable ultra deadpan of all deadpans. Also him playing a rich guy, which is this subspecialty that he's so good at, right? The the incredibly useless, foppish dandy is a is a great subspecialty for him but but it is like he's he's king of two and three reelers he does that and then they're like eh, don't get too big for yourself go back to shorts and then this is when he comes out and is like let me really take a stab at features and something worth noting actually is that not only were they his first feature comedies but feature length comedies were pretty unusual in yes. 1923 like chaplin's first one wasn't until right. 1921 yeah. that he directed himself this is primordial shit in several different ways for him and his career, feature-length comedies, and also just the genres he's already playing with and his ambition and setting this up. I guess today is Dana Stevens. The great Dana Stevens from Slate, but also the author of Cameraman, the great book about Buster Keaton. Now that we've done the, the setup, I just want to say, because I've had this sitting here, this opening image of Father Time. We have to get back to Father Time. Of course. The first Chaplin features what the kid. That's the first. The like, kid's sort of, the yeah. first feature length right. that he directed. He was right. in an earlier one, but mm-hmm. just like just like Keaton, actually. So this movie starts with it's it's three we're, ages. You're we're gonna get about the, the f- context. We, you we, know. we have much much to set up about. But Mr. I just want to talk. I want to front load this Father Time shit, okay? Because as we're saying, this is this is unmined IP. This is hot IP. Sure, Father Time. There should be a Father Time movie, right? right, right, right. Father Time should be in every movie. Okay. This shot here of Father Time, okay? Let's talk about what he's got going on here. Old guy, beard, long white hair. Scythe. Scythe. He's holding a scythe. The scythe is a little intense. Like the Grim Reaper. Yes. They're, they're sort of quietly implying that Father Time also comes for us all. He's the guy who tells you when your time is up. And then in front of him on his desk, a couple quilled pens, a skull... An hourglass and a globe. So he does kind of have a quasi-death vibe. You're right. That's your basic desk set, really. Right, right, the classic. But I like that he's like kind of God, death, and father time at the same time. Like, they're making it seem like he's he's overseeing everything. He's the one keeping the trains running. Yeah, but maybe that's what messed with him. Death becomes sort of a hot guy on his own, right? Interesting. And then like the Sandman shows up. Right. And he's kind of in charge of sort of dreams and stuff. I don't know. Like You're saying the reason Father Time, he's maybe too powerful. It's the yeah, Superman it's, problem. It's, you don't know how to put him in a I, modern movie. I think it's the name. I think you just need to update it to, like, Time Daddy. 
Right. <laughs> Maybe Time Zaddy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That that feels like it'll read better for a more contemporary audience. Pedro Pascal is yeah. Time Zaddy. This, <laughs> this is interesting. He was, yeah, he was, he's existed in some form since ancient Greek culture. Mm -hmm. But uh, then he kind of got merged with the Grim Reaper at times. And then, okay. with, like, the side thing is... Yeah is sort of uh, the crossover with the Grim Reaper. I don't know. Never thought about him before. Not a guy I think right. about. I feel like sometimes, I feel like he's presented as just like, what does he do? Clock in, clock out, keep shit running, right? Mm -hmm. Father Time's main job, make sure things don't go backwards. He's just gotta go forward, right? Time's gotta progress. And other times it's like, I'm, I'm coming, I'm collecting. He's in the Santa Claus movies, remember? Oh yeah, Peter, Peter Boyle. Boyle plays. Yes. Him, right. And then this classic, big guy, big beard. Yes. He's like a staff. Uh-huh. There's a, uh, what's it called? Rudolph Shiny New Year. The Rankin-Bass special that has a lot of father time and Baby New Year. Baby New Year, another underexploited IP. I definitely don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I was going to say, the main, the main way you see father time is in this sort of like mid-century greeting yes. card, right? Yes. Where the new baby mm. year is yes. arriving and old father time is passing out, which actually goes back to Christmas Carol, right? Because Christmas present turns mm -hmm. into this old man in one day. Yes. Do the groundhogs and Father Time work together? This is the thing. With, there's so much IP here. We're not using any well, it's of it. It's pretty fungible. You can kind of do what you want That's with That's what's good about it. Right. But I'm going to make him non-fungible. I'm yes. going to mint Father Time as an NFT and But when I'm rich. saying this is good IP, obviously, what I'm saying is less we should put him in movies and more we should put him in fucking digital stamps. Right, exactly. Right. But yes, no. really want. It, sh it should be Father Time with his pet groundhog. And baby New Year. Baby New Year, David, the whole premise of, oh, here comes the New Year like a baby and some naked baby wearing a sash with a year on it and a top hat. It's one of the funniest things that's ever existed. Uh, it, I'm looking at it, and it is funny. Uh, I never thought about this. You know, in the Jews uh -huh. have the, you know, at Rosh Hashanah, they, they talk about how, like, your, your name is getting written in the book of life. We. Let's say we. We. We, we talk about we it. talk about it. you and Dana, I talk you're not about sure, it. Yeah. Mm -mm. but you're you know live with maybe, the Jew though yeah, exactly. so honorary honorary and like I remember as a kid I would really focus on that that like there's some guy who's like David Sims and I'm like <laughs> all right phew, another year you know like uh, I like that yeah I like that more than a baby with a top hat yeah um okay uh let's stop talking about this thank okay. you <laughs> uh yes we're here to talk about Joseph Hallie that's his father Joseph Frank is oh, is Buster's that's his name. dad yep yeah. And he is, but he is also, what's his, uh, he's also Joseph. Joseph. He's, he's a Joseph. junior, hence podcast junior, hey, right? Hey, right. see? Right. That is probably why the junior is so present in his mind, right? Obviously, it's like a clean branding thing to go, like, what's my movie? Understand a title that's usually held by a serious person. Put junior on it. Now I play the worst version. The less together version of that. And Junior is also just so key to his persona, right? Because he grows saying. up yeah. getting kicked around by his dad. Yes. I mean, he's, but all those movies are about some Look father how cute figure. He was. Oh, yes. I'm looking at little pictures of baby. Oh, man. Uh, when you start researching Buster Keaton's childhood, you, you don't want to leave that rabbit hole. It's well, so great. Guy. Can you find one without the hat, David? Because have, have you seen the wig they had him wear when he was a little kid? The bald wig with, yes. the, with the Irish, yeah. They gave him a male pattern baldness. <laughs> That was so funny. It is pretty funny. This thing. Yes. Yeah, it's the ethnic Irish costume. Oh, Man, is there anything more romantic in my head that was obviously bad? A nightmare. Than vaudeville families yes. in like the turn of the century. Yes. 
I mean, this is the, it's it's so much of what is so fascinating. Hey, I don't think that. I'm offended by this. Yeah, well, as I an Irishman, I don't like. But this. that's that's not what they're like. They're little, not little bald babies. <laughs> I'm keeping my hat on. Today. Sad bald babies. Damn. Uh, yes. Yeah. No, vaudeville the more you, families. You dig yeah. into the Buster Vaudeville uh, uh, story. It's 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 complicated to say the least. It is weird that we presented Irishmen as these like bushy haired men. You know, like like that 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 was some sort of stereotypical you know presentation of an Irishman. Yeah, but the leprechaun, right? Doesn't the Lucky Charms leprechaun also have sort of You're like right, a yes. bozo reverse mohawk kind of? Yeah, he's got funny hair. Now I do. That I yes. No, the it, leprechauns yeah. had that the sort of hair just peering out wildly from underneath the hat. Yeah, Darby O'Gillis. Guess so. It was a thing. I guess it is more of a. It's the stark red hair. You right, that becomes sure. more the classic thing. I guess this pro- these wigs may have been red. They're I'm, I'm guessing they're. Yeah, very, yeah I yeah. think they're written up as as red wigs and in, in descriptions of the time. Yeah, uh, it's just I also think you know itchy and scratchy. You know the joke about look out itchy, itchy he's Irish. <laughs> it's true. They meet an Irishman. You know, like I think that that was a thing back in the day. You know, actually, the the father son act is basically the itchy and scratchy show, right? The yes. Keaton, the three Keatons. Yes. Yes. Um, with wait, with um, who was uh, whatever. Wait, I mean, Itchy is sort of the antagonist, or is Scratchy the antagonist? Well, it, it was Buster was Itchy, right? And Scra- he was the little Scratchy's the right. cat. Yes. Yeah, Scratchy's right. the cat. Yes. Yeah, it's the pursued and the pursuer. But of right. course, yes. you know, the joke is always in in both cartoons and in that act that yeah. the tables get turned constantly. It is, you know, digging back into Buster again. I I am a longtime Buster Keaton fan, but I've been going deep back into this as we prepare to do this series. The the language of cartoons, like so much, comes out of him. Not to give him full credit, but I feel like he crystallized a lot of things. And even that father-son act crystallized a lot of things. That's the dynamic of, like, Tom and Jerry and Itchy and Scratchy and most little guy, big guy. They're both trying to get the better of the other. Yeah, I mean, that was actually a chapter of the book that never came to be because the moment their act is happening is also the exact same moment that comic strips are first appearing in American newspapers, right? right? And so he grew up seeing the funnies and was among the first generation to see them. So. It's one of the many, many things that he obviously just kind of magpie style pulled from popular culture without ever thinking, I'll do a comic strip on stage. Right. It was just in his brain as a kid. But then he synthesizes it into something that then makes sense in motion, which I think then gets carried into animation out of comic strips. You right. Know? Which shows it's you like, that movies are kind of the bridge, right? Absolutely. Live action is the bridge in between the comic strip and the yes. cartoon. Look, there's, there's so what much to talk about here. time. What did people do them before they looked at etchings? Like, the what did fa- they do? The fact that minute the 19th three century. of, like, three ages is Buster going, like, and I'm going to slide down a stop-motion dinosaur. Yeah, yes. I that. Like, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is is wild. Your your book, Dana, is so great. I read it when it came out. Or I even read it in advance because I, th- I think uh, your publisher very kindly sent us some copies before some other episode we recorded with you maybe i'll read it again because that galley had so many errors in it griffin i'm ashamed i had the galley and then i've been i've been listening to it now as the audiobook which ben i know has been doing as well and, and we were saying right before you recorded you have such a good voice for audiobooks you should just do them for Great other voice. people's books oh i wish i love reading audiobooks You're it's so a fun legendary podcaster I mean, yes yeah, best voice in the biz yes but the thing that's so great about your book and you've talked about that this was like the thing you always not found lacking, but that you wanted out of a Buster Keaton book that you couldn't find out there was really placing him in the context of both what feeds into him that comes out in his work and what comes out of his work that feeds into the culture. 
you know, in both directions. That yeah. he's so much like this man at the center of the culture at any moment. Uh, he's so much a product of his time. Uh, you know, a person of the 1900s who was really, uh, uh, you know, this figure of m modernity as it was developing. Yeah, he's just such a bridge between so many modes of performance that came yes. before or things like the comic strip we were just talking about between so many strands of pop culture that preceded him, right? Because yeah. he's born in 1895 and then the things that came after him because he dies in 1966. And to me, just that lifespan is a reason enough to to write a book about him. Like, yeah. imagine living from 1895 to 1966. It's only 70 years. He died before he turned 71. Yes. But, but imagine how much the world changed during those years, right? And he's so much at the heart of that and at the at the forefront of a lot of it, you know, at the, like making the changes himself without yeah. having ever perceived of himself as that. But then also being able to recognize things like the funnies and go like, we should be pulling from this. You know, this is a language that should be worked into this new art form. It, 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 he's he's uh, such a fascinating figure. Mm. I've been a fan of his for so long. Yeah, when did you become a Buster Keaton fan. When I was in high school mm. and I went through an obsessive period, maybe freshman or sophomore year, where I decided that homework was a waste of time and I was going to watch three movies every night. Uh, a period... Three movies every night mm -hmm. is too many movies mm -hmm. for a night. Uh, and you maybe hear that the wild success of this period was I came very close to getting kicked out of high school several times. Getting kicked out of a high school that doesn't kick people out. Correct. Yeah, right. I, people, I cannot explain how close I came to getting kicked out multiple times for the lamest reasons possible because people were like were you like some hellion did you go through a drug phase and i was like no i was just like watching silent films all night <laughs> and then refusing to write papers on yeah. ethical grounds or sleep right yeah yes yes um but but yes yeah, so there was this period i had you know i had like a uh like a 13 inch tv vcr combo much like the the ben porch staple and then I think when I was in high school, I asked if we could get another cable box to plug into that TV. And that's when, like, the fucking doors flew off of, like, now I could just lock myself in my room and I have Turner Classic Movies and I can just, like, watch whatever's on every night. And they had just done a restoration of The Cameraman and there was, a, like, a Robert Osborne-hosted short documentary called So Funny It Hurts mm. that I think is now still on the Criterion Cameraman release that's about his sort of rise and fall around the MGM period, which is when he basically gives up his blank check and, you know, suddenly is beholden to a, a larger bank. But I, like, watched those two one night and went, like, holy shit. Uh, and I think this was in this phase where I'm starting to get really seriously into movies after being a big movie kid but wanting to be, like, I want to know my history. Right. And so there's a lot of stuff that I'm watching compulsively as of, like, I need to check that off. I need to have seen a movie like this. I need to know this time period just so I can throw out the reference points for the things. There's a lot of, you know, desperate to prove myself uh, sort of uh, completionism uh, where the watching three movies a, a night, a lot of times I was not even enjoying watching the movies. No. It was this obsessive need of no. like, I need to know more than everyone it else. It becomes this obligation. That's not right. fun. You know. But silent film works so great for that. I've told so, a lot of people this while yes. going around touring with this book is that if you want to be some completionist nerd about Buster Keaton, mm -hmm. it only takes like two weeks. Yes. <laughs> you know? No. I mean, his filmography is small. The films are short. Especially the main shit. You know? Yeah, that's what I mean. The really silent, you know, golden yes. era stuff. You can watch yes. it all in two solid weeks. You wouldn't even be up late every night watching. That's the thing. So it was like it, they were just doing that sort of series. I think uh, TCM had done this restoration themselves, made the short documentary, 
And then a lot of them were playing. So like those two weeks, I was just watching Buster movies uh, every night. And I very quickly had that thing of like, you know, you watch three movies a night. A lot of time I'm, I'm eating fucking snack food and I'm like, uh, you know, texting people and I'm like Googling something and I'm half doing homework I'm supposed to be doing. But then you're watching a silent film. You can't be doing anything else, right? You have to just be 100% locked in to that. Right. And so True. quickly, I'm like, oh, I'm engrossed in this. I'm actually finding this funny. This is not the compulsive, I just want to build up my film history thing. I'm like leaning into this. And then he just became like one of my top guys. Uh, so that was like 20 years ago. And I went through this compulsive phase of trying to watch as much of it as I can. Uh, and I still, you know, whenever they screen movies, uh, his films in New York, I try to go see them again. Ben and I went and saw Sherlock Jr. this weekend. It was my first time seeing it. Ah, where was it showing? It was at the Paris Theater. Did they have music? Live music? They didn't it was, have live music. No. I love that the Paris is showing, Keaton. I did not know that. It was because uh, Tom Luddy, the Telluride founder, died, and they did a special series of, like, 10 films that either he worked on or were his favorites. So it was isolated. It was not part of a larger Keaton series, which I wish. But it was just a free screening at 1230 on a Sunday of, like, the most perfect 45-minute movie ever made, which we got to see with a crowd who was, like, 100% into it and laughing. And that's the thing that's so satisfying to me. The reason I wanted to do Keaton for so long is that, like, I think a lot of people, understandably, are just, like, silent film might be one step further than I can go, right? I just think that's going to feel like homework to me. I'm not going to get into this, even if I understand the sort of nutritious vegetable quality of this. If you have ADD... Like I do, it's like it seems. It's daunting. like I can't, I can't. I don't think I could focus on it for longer than like. It's, but it's a few like going to the gym for our phone addicted yes generation. Like we we should all watch silent movies once a day. That just may to be like, the case with a lot of the silent canon. I mean, I at this point have been watching it so long that like when I was rewatching this stuff for yeah. this podcast, I didn't have my headphones handy, so I watched it truly silent. Yeah. Just like I was just like mainlining it, you know, yeah. hardcore. Right. Like I don't even need music. Yeah, just but free basing. I do understand that there's a, an obstacle to get over, but I think that Keaton is that's why he's the perfect entry drug. Argument. Right, this is my argument this because is why he. I've seen this happen over the past yes. year. I've been touring this book and I have seen, you know, roomfuls of people, many of whom had never seen a silent film before yeah. or Keaton before. Kids, you know, there was a kid who went screen who had never seen a movie before. It was his first time in a movie theater seeing a real projected yeah. movie. And I think it was Sherlock Jr. that time. And it plays every single time. There's no need for context. No. You know, it's just, it's, he makes people laugh as reliably as he did 120 years ago. Sherlock Jr. is the one you can always point to where you're just like, this feels incredibly modern. Yes. It is actually funny. You're not going like, hmm, 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 hmm. I get or, it. Yeah, people are like, like I can see why this amused right. people in the Depression or it's, whatever. It's not yeah. a, a historical context document. And my hope is that in doing this series, we will get people to watch these films for the first time and realize that they actually enjoy them. And they are highly yes. accessible. Yes. Um, like, m more accessible than anything. Yes. This is uh, the first uh, miniseries we're doing where every film we're covering is in the public domain. Have you ever done a silent series before? No, no, wow. no. We, we, this is you know, far and away. Ah, I'm is, honored to be here. Exactly. For the, this is, I would not call this a risk for us or whatever, but like a few years ago, we probably would have been more reticent because, like, yes. you know, we had the kind of podcast where like our numbers would dip if we just did something vaguely obscure, like even within a filmography, maybe that was more yes. if uh, we well covered, known. If we covered someone's first movie, Catherine Bigelow's The Loveless, right. for example, that's the example yes. that used to be our like. Okay, so that's the lowest that's the our listenership bottom. goes. Have you seen Catherine Bigelow's The Loveless, I her first not. film? It's not mm -hmm. bad. Very like 
heavy on the semiotics. You know, it's like biker boys yes. driving their my motorcycles. You know, it's very it's uh, it's semiotics thesis film. Nineties yeah. grad student. Yes, big Eighties, but yes, and it's yes. like an hour long. You know, but it, yes, it, it, look, I say this as a compliment to our listeners. We used to use like the Loveless as the metric against like, uh, you know. Uh, Hurt Locker or uh, Point Break in that same series, right? Yeah. Where we were like, you know, okay, if we do uh, The Loveless, we will get 50% of our regular weekly listenership. If we do The Hurt Locker or Point Break, it'll maybe go 25% above what our regular listenership is. And then the ones that are sort of in the middle, you know, that's whatever our baseline number is. And over the last couple of years, our numbers have remained very consistent where it feels like, oh, people will actually seek out the movie we're talking about and watch it and not just wait for the episode to we be something they've already seen. With this. Obviously. So it just felt like, let's, let's, tr let's try to do this. But yeah. we've never done silent. Up until this point, the earliest film we have covered on the podcast is Fear and Desire. Yeah, the Kubrick's 50s. first film. We've never gone back which to the early 20s. 50s. So we're going three decades earlier than we've ever done, which yeah. is exciting for me. Yeah. Um, but yes, I'm hoping the feeling everyone will have watching these movies is, oh, these feel a lot more present and relevant than I expected. Yeah, there's no question that Keaton has survived for the modern sensibility and modern sense of humor better than any comedian from that time, I, I think. I, really I would think agree so. with that. And I would agree with that over, say, Chaplin. I mean, just in terms of broad audience appeal is what yes. I'm saying. I'm not even rating their artistry not, right not now. Like, obviously, I wrote the book on the one that I prefer of the yeah. two, but... But even not comparing that, just they play better. They feel more modern. And that's no beef with uh, Charlie C. Who Look, made some I, I love Chaplin as well. I greatly prefer Buster Keaton. If I pit them against each other in comparison conversations across the next couple of weeks, it's not because I want to shit on Chaplin. It's more that I want to spotlight the things I think make Buster particularly unique. But I think the Chaplin staying power has been more rooted in... Uh, his films work so strongly as emotional stories, mm. right? That even as perhaps the comedy in them went a little bit out of fashion, there are movies that still play as like, well, there's an arc here that I understand. There are these clear emo emotional through lines. And then someone like Harold Lloyd, who I think often gets put into this box of like, that's someone you can watch and you understand the craft and the technique of what he's doing for a lot of people, you know? I mean, I like Charlie. Now I feel mean that I was... I'm not being negative. What's, you know, but City I, Lights at the end, he's crying. This is what I'm saying. But that's that's my point. I'm like, the City Lights ending is like a thing that cuts through. Where we even if remember, someone's watching right, it and they're like, I don't know if I find this funny today. You're going to find him, like the kid running to him. Right. Yeah, the kid is my favorite Chaplin feature, I think, still. You know, it, and, the, and the best Chaplin of all is the shorts. The right. really yes. anarchic. Which is sort of how you feel about Buster, too, right? When I yeah. was like, hey, Dana, we're doing Buster Keaton. Like, you know, are you interested in anything in particular? You were kind of like, well, the shorts are the most interesting. Well, I'm so happy yeah. we're doing a bonus segment are, on we, the shorts. Patreon will yeah, come out in four days, uh, May 11th. But I have to say the reason when you gave me this very tempting list of different yeah. shows to select from, I was really torn because these two movies we're talking about today, Three Ages and Our Hospitality, yeah while great, are not my favorite Keatons at I all. Agree. Like, Three Ages is nobody's favorite Buster Keaton movie. It's no. his very first feature, and it's like, it feels very uh, primordial in some ways. But yes. I just wanted to be in on the ground floor of this series. Yeah. I, I think you're the perfect person to help us set context for all this. I do think, though, if anyone watched these two movies and they're like, I'm not as on board as Griffin and Dana are, maybe I'm not a Buster Keaton guy, 
you're watching two movies where he's figuring it right. out. The, the, right. And they have moments of absolute brilliance and technique, uh, skill at, at display. But I think after this point is when he's really firing in all cylinders. And it really doesn't matter where you enter in. There's no need to start. No. Here, you know, I mean, I often no. I often tell people to watch the cameraman first if they want to start with a feature. Yeah, cameraman and Sherlock are the two that I always recommend to people that I think just follow the modern rhythms of films. And then my personal favorite, I mean, it's something that changes throughout your life, but I would say Steamboat Bill Jr. is just my personal favorite Keaton movie. It gets a whole chapter in the book because there's yeah. just so much there. What's I your am, personal favorite? My personal favorite is Cameraman. I think Sherlock Jr. is the best quote unquote. Uh -huh. But I'm also like, I just think that's one of the best movies ever made. I think that's just a perfect work. Steamboat Bill Jr. is the one I've never liked as much as other people, but I'm very excited to rewatch it for this. I have no problem with it. I think maybe for me, it's just because it's, it represents, it's, it, if you know something about his career and life, it becomes a film that you see is very pivotal. You know, it's his last independent, true yes. independent movie, right? The last movie in which he did exactly what he wanted to do. It echoes things from his own life and the junior stuff we were talking about, you know, resolving his relationship with his dad yes. in this way that feels completely unconscious and organic, right? Like he's not Ari Aster. He's not setting out to resolve some emotional issue. He's yes. just trying to make people laugh. But in his own life, he's at this moment where he's starting to let go of the shtick he and his dad had done, you know? And so it, it, it brings up this very poignant question of what would he have done next if he had still kept his freedom after that year? Absolutely. Right. No, I, so I, the mystery. I always yeah. enjoyed it. And it's one I've rewatched less and I'm excited to rewatch it with the context of, you know, your book I and many other things. I just when he was a mouse. I mean, we had to, I had to make that joke. Steamboat. Right? That's, that is a parody yeah. of Steamboat Bill in some sense, right? At least in title. Yeah, here's another, I mean, here's another thing. I think a lot of the Disney animation sure. is very influenced by Chaplin, which I think was even basically acknowledged by Walt mm -hmm. Disney. That Mickey time. Mouse is Chaplin. Mickey Mouse is a Chaplin character. Right. Looney Tunes really feels like the descendant of Buster Keaton. Absolutely. Yeah, he's much more of a Bugs. Yeah, and even though the persona is different, Bugs is so much more uh, aggressive. Right. Yeah. I was like, even watching Sherlock Jr. with Ben, I was pointing out how many gags are sort of setting up the type of cartoon logic that animation's gonna run off of for the next 60 years. There's things, even in Three Ages in particular, where you're just like, that's not a big physical stunt. That's not classically what people would think of is as maybe Buster Keaton's skill as a gag writer in the popular, uh, the mainstream consciousness. But I think it's as much a part of his core genius is his sort of subtle rewriting of reality. Uh, in ways that feel like they can get at a static truth or point out the absurdities of our own lives and absurdities. David? Yes? Looking at our ad copy for this week. Yeah. And it says, intros and thoughts, daughters. Yeah. Not a script. Use these ideas as a starting point. Put in your own words. And that's highlighted. It says, host ad lib. Yeah. Give a shout out to a member of your team who works tirelessly behind the scenes. And you know who I'm going to choose to make that shout out to? Me, David Sims? Ben Hosley. Ben Hosley! What? What? Look, Come on. Ben, you're actually probably the biggest user of stamps.com of any this of us. This is why. Anyway. This is why I'm saying this. Uh, and, you know, they they help businesses like yours and ours right, save right. time and money. It says right. if you have someone who specifically handles shipping, and that's definitely Ben. I want to talk about how hard they work and what an important piece of the puzzle they are. Ben, this show wouldn't exist without you. Well, I really appreciate it. wouldn't that. exist in its infancy, and you're the one who keeps it afloat. That's all true, also true, but all it also just wouldn't exist without Stamps.com. That's the Because thing. all you need is a computer and a printer, and they send you a free scale. You have right. everything you need to get started. Ben's the most important 
member of this team. Right. Ben's like number one, then Stamps.com. Then Stamps.com. <laughs> And then, like, maybe Griffin and David tied or whatever. Marie, yeah. and then uh, Marie, and, and then Griffin and David. And honestly, JJ and yeah, Alex and JJ. And, yeah. You know, a lot of good. Right. All right. We're at the bottom of the total. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Look, if yeah. you need a package pickup, you can yeah. schedule it through your stamps.com dashboard. Uh huh. If you sell products online, wow. Uh, stamps.com seamlessly connects with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Uh, they got some premium discounts. Sure. Up to 84% off UPS and USPS rates. David said, wow, because there was a lot of noise coming from the hallway. Yes, and that noise was a barrage of people just going, stamps, 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 stamps. For 25 stamps, years, they've been indispensable for over a million businesses. Mm -hmm. And you can get access to USPS and UPS services you need right from your computer anytime, day or night. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Set up your business for success when you get started with stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code CHECK for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale, no long-term term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code CHECK. They want us to shout out a member of our team, and basically we just shouted out how much we like stamps.com. We do. It's good. Well, it's, we direct it back to for stamps.com, which is good. Yeah, tell me. Stamps.com slash CHECK. Microphone. Top of the page. Microphone. Click the microphone. You better do it. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. Anytime. Buster Keaton, he's the son of Joseph Halley Keaton. Yes. Born 1867 in Terre Haute, Indiana. Did you know that, Dana? I bet you didn't. <laughs> I don't think I could have gotten his father's birth date. Shame on me. Yeah, I, actually, that is crazy that our researcher put the, his father's birth date yes. in here. I briefly interpreted this as being Buster's birth And I was like, wait, Buster Keaton was in his 50s? And he was making <laughs> fucking, he looks great. Looked incredible, yeah. Um, he yes. died at age 99 in that case. Right. And uh, during the land rush of 1889. Mm-hmm. I mean, which the land rush, that's just when white people went west and had like one shotgun and would just sort of be like, these 200 acres? Mine. Joe, Joe Keaton. Yeah. <laughs> like, right? Like, that's what the Yeah, land I mean, rush the Oklahoma is, version right? of it was literally a day, a particular day that was set. And people were just, it was like they were waiting to get into a show or something. They were just camped out around the perimeter waiting to go in and plant their flag. <laughs> it, it was, right. It Terrible. Was country, trying to get Taylor really. Swift tickets without crashing Ticketmaster or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. Then, uh, you, and Dana, honestly, you may know this stuff better than me, but he eventually ends up wanting to go to california in search of performance like he wants to perform but he ends up back in oklahoma meets myra cutler who is buster's mother mm -hmm. right and they start performing together like yeah, they yes, joined a medicine yeah. show basically i mean i feel like a the key the key thing show? to realize is a medicine yeah, baby, show. here we go <laughs> i mean basically they they were out in the prairie yes. right and mm -hmm. uh and they and there's not toured around probably in wagons i don't think that trains were probably even extended across the country enough at that point that they were taking trains as, right. as the three ketons mm -hmm. did later on they were just going by wagon from town to town with various outfits and the, the thing that's key to understand, I feel like, about his birth and early childhood is that it's not that he joined a performing family and was trained by the performing family. It's more that his parents were a failed vaudeville act, yeah, or not right. even vaudeville, a failed medicine show touring act yeah. uh, that was barely getting by because they had no real skills to offer. His dad was an acrobat. Yes. Right. Um, so the is that wait is the idea of a medicine show? It's like they do some jokes and then someone comes out and is like, "Buy this!" Yeah, yeah, they're selling right, right, snake right, oil. Right. It's yeah. all it's all right. bam, it was, together. Yeah, right. yeah, you have you have a, a sort of a, a traveling carriage, right? That's like performers right. and salespeople, right? The tonics uh, alongside the right. whatever. It was vaudeville. it was basically the primetime television of its day. 
where you're just like, here's just a and collection it must have been of different. So easy back then right. because people had so many ailments, right? Yes. Like it was it was such hard life. But look, that's what it, you fucking you watch Friends at eight o'clock. They sell you blood pressure medication. That's true. And then Frasier starts <laughs> or whatever. True, you know? I can't like, deny. That's what it was. Like someone would come out and do a routine, and someone would come out and be like, baldness is a thing of the past. <laughs> and then they, like <laughs> another guy would come out and do a backflip. Like that's what a medicine show was. It's so similar. Like it, it, the context of it feels wildly different because you're out in the middle of the plains and whatever or in a small town but it was it's very similar to how we absorb entertainment it's today. true entertainment and advertising were intertwined right from from the start of the 20th century yes. and yeah. such a fascinating thing you get into in your book is like when film is starting to develop and it's actualities you know it's like uh, uh little newsreels it's what, what i guess newsreels come later but, uh, you know, these very, very short subject things and Nickelodeons and all of that, all the reporting at the time of life is like it's going to be bad for the young generation's brains to watch this much stuff this quickly. Yeah. The, and the rhetoric really is exactly it's the same exactly as it was about television and the Internet. Yes, yeah. Everything right. that's come since. Right. Oh, these kids are just being overloaded with stimuli and all this is like short form nonsense with no substance. Well, because here's another date that's key to understand. Like 1867, we can dispense with in Terre Haute. But 1895 in yes. Pequay, Kansas, when Buster Keaton is born, is yes. also the, the year and just a couple months away from the date that movies are projected for the first time yes. by the Lumiere brothers. And that's a fact that, you know, comes up in every Keaton biography because it's a neat coincidence. Right. But he if you really like think about what that means. cinema was in Right, they're born together. Concurrent. But that also means they grow up together. Right. right? Yes. And so right. that means as he's traveling with these shows, yep. which when he joined the act at around age five, start to become top-line vaudeville shows in the best circuits, yeah. they're showing movies with every show. And that's the first way m most Americans saw movies, right. right? So they went to see a guy, you know, jump onto a bucket or whatever. Is and then at the, the very end, there's a couple short two-minute movies. I love right. a bucket act. Yeah, I do like a guy who's just like, just one bucket. And you're like, I mean, what's he going to do with what that? Is it? And he <laughs> can do so much with it. Ben, you've been listening to the book, so you know this. David, do you know what, what Joe Keaton's senior big thing was? Uh, I don't know. He was a table act. Oh, he would like do stuff. The with man the with the table. He the man with the table. His thing sure. was like, you you won't believe what you see me do with this fucking table. <laughs> and, and, they hauled, and they hauled the wood table around yeah. the country. Get the one table. It was like, oh fuck, he brought the table. Yeah, <laughs> that's gonna be good. As you alluded to already, supposedly yeah. Buster gets his name because he fell down a flight of stairs, and somebody said. That's sure a Buster, and Buster would often claim Harry Houdini had said this. Some right? version of this definitely happened, and there's there's debate as to when it happened to in front of which person who coined the term or whatever. Basically, the kid falls down a flight of stairs. He has no reaction. He doesn't seem injured. He gets back up. Right. And some adult sure friends of his parents said, wow, that kid can really take a, a buster. He's a buster. Or he's a little buster, or what a buster, or something like that, and it kind of sticks. But key point, as you bring up, Dana... Buster is kind of this anti-Nepo kid. And it's this thing that I think in this exhausting discourse that's happening now doesn't get discussed as much, which is like the amount of children who are the amount of, let's say, stage kids who are the children of like failed showbiz people, people who like committed their whole career to it and spent their entire lives kind of at the margins. And there's some X factor missing. There's it's like some... what if Salieri was Mozart's dad? Correct. Correct. And there's like a ton of that, you know, um, and still is to this day. But he has this father who had all the ambition and it just it never totally connected, whether it was there was some element of him that was unlikable. There was some self-destructive strain in him. 
uh, there was some lack of ingenuity or charisma or whatever it is, or all of it combined. He was really a better pitchman than anything else, you know, which came in yeah. really handy when he had a performing prodigy for a son. But a guy who on paper is like, he, he certainly, he learned every type of act. He had all the experience. He had right. the skill he set. He knew a ton of people too. Yep. It seems like he, like, Yeah, because Harry Houdini was circuit. a good friend. And yeah, he, he was, definitely was right. a, a He's not making guy. up the Harry Houdini thing out of your whole class. He was His parents traveled with Houdini for a while. Yeah, for sure. But it's like when you read uh, biographies about, uh, you know, sort of artists when there are movements, right? Where six people come up in the same wave and you're like, well, five of those guys became totemic figures in society. Who's this fucking six guy who's in 12 chapters but never did anything of importance? And you're like, there's just always sort of that guy in the group who is in the right place, doing the right work with the right people and just it never totally connected in the same way. Right. This kid falls down a flight of stairs and immediately is funny than anything he's ever done. Like it is not to reduce it, but it no, is no, no, like sure, sure. they it's... just immediately realize like, oh, this kid's the fucking juice. That was actually the thing that surprised me most in research, I think, is that, you know, I'd read a lot of biographies of him by that time. I knew yeah. he was a child star. He wasn't just a child performer. He was like the reason you went to see the he, act, right? He became the act. But like yeah. when you trace in the in the press of the time, how quickly that happened. That was what really boggled me is that he first performs, you know, really on stage with them in any way other than just coming out to be cute for a minute or right. something when he had just turned five. Right. And six months later, he's being billed as, you know, the, they don't even mention the parents' names. You yes. know, they say the three Keatons starring Buster. And he's the one who gets the little write up about and he's being talked about by, you know, vaudeville critics, whatever those were, because that's sort of in between pitchman and critic in those days. Yeah. Right. But people were genuinely wowed by the performance of this five-and-a-half-year-old kid. And by the time he's six years old, like one year into performing, they've gone from, you know, the Mohawk Indian Medicine Show in Kansas to, like, Pastors and Keiths and the Orpheum and the yeah. big vaudeville circuits. Right. And, and you talk about this in your book, but he was such a sensation that he was the subject of the sort of stars, they're just like us pieces. You have pieces about Buster in, like, single-digit years about, like, he's a normal kid. He plays with his train set. You know, he's just a happy little kid. Right. He might get on stage, but other than that, he's he's just like you. Well, sure. and it was this weird, like, A, the public was so obsessed with him, they wanted to know more about him. But B, Joe Sr. needed to really sell in order for the act to continue to grow. He is not damaged by this at all. You know? Right. Well, one of their taglines was the boy who couldn't be right. damaged. The boy, the boy who the can't be boy damaged. The boy who can't be damaged. Right. Which, Which that, that is, is very much like my shirt about my boy who can't be damaged <laughs> is, answers a lot of the questions. Yeah. Yes. yeah, it's it's so like this is not a fast a flash fast forward to his midlife. Not at all. Right. He can't be damaged. It's easy. Throw him against the wall. See, he's fine. But it was the human mop, apparently. Another that word, was a another big nickname. Routine. Yeah, right. But yeah. So there there was a lot of rough housing, it seems like, was the Right. Well, even right. even in uh, these early years, there was starting to be the conversation of like, is this inhumane to make kids be part of acts like this? I would say also that is the era when the sort of um, what's this, you know, Jacob Reese era where like humanity is starting to think like, should children work? Yeah. I mean, we've been letting them do it, but right. Is yeah, you know, child labor them? laws and, right, and yeah. child abuse laws and all that right. stuff. Well, this is in the book, so you know already. But yeah. it's it, it was almost completely contiguous with that. Maybe a generation before, but that means that you know, Busters was the first generation to actually be impacted by the reforms because they were right. written into law. Pushed, yes. pushed along by the grandson of the man who invented gerrymandering. 
Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, Elbridge Jerry, who yes. started oh, oh, who sure. started this child labor movement, was a, was a lawyer and a kind of progressive reformer. Right. Grandson yeah. Great of grandson of a former yeah. vice president. Uh, Elbridge Jerry. Yeah, he was the for whom gerrymandering. I, th- I believe it's pronounced well, Jerry, his... actually. But yes. Sorry. Right. The Jerry family. But nobody says gerrymandering, so we've just kind of right, back formation. You're right. You're right. It's Gary. But yeah, his he... grandson is the one who really starts pushing this child yes. labor thing as kids are becoming a bigger part of acts. There's there's some playground down by the Manhattan Bridge. That's a very early playground. And I read some story about it once and it was like, they were like, kids need somewhere to blow off after like all the work they do yeah. at the factory. Like that's when they were building those things. Basically. And that's also when cars were coming about, right? right. So kids were getting crushed by cars constantly. I mean, if yes. you read about like the situation of children at the turn of the 20th century, it's mm-hmm. nuts how much it changed in about 20 years. And look, as... as we as, never should have had cars. We really should have put no, a stop I, to I've that. been saying this forever. I know, it really is crazy. I'm on the record as but always saying They were just this. like, you know, running around, smashing into people. And the we were only like, cars oh, we'll I trust out. have big eyes and tongues and say ka-chow. And those are the only <laughs> cars that should exist. They should exist safely I, within screens. I feel like people were encouraged to drink while driving. Right. right? Like yes, you were supposed to be intoxicated. Right. You were supposed to uh, drink gasoline and pour alcohol into the tank. Yeah, and that exactly. was the ideal way to take to the road. The human mop thing, David, yeah. was sort of, Joe Sr. for years was constantly trying to find ways to skirt around legally having Buster be part of the show. Uh-huh. So it was like, it's illegal for kids to do acrobat acts. And he's like, cool, my kid's not an acrobat. He's a prop. Right, he's a mop. I put okay. a fucking mop on him and I hold him by his feet and I mop the floor with him. And then he would just get bigger laughs as a mop than anything his dad was doing. Yeah, so, wow, he would just constantly be upstaging his jealous dad. Oh, and the upstaging was part of the act as well. The whole fucking key to the thing was he would, uh, Joe would bring Buster out as the, like, I'm going to now offer an instructional to parents on how to rear your child. And he'd be downstage where you couldn't see the kid, right? It was the whole bit is that he's looking at the back of Buster's head from the audience's view, and he's going, I'm going to make example of this kid. I'm going to show you how to lay down the law with children. And Buster would always get the better of him. Joe would be oblivious to what was happening until it was too late. And at some early point, they realize when Buster sort of does the full Bugs Bunny, ain't I a stinker, sort of wagging his eyebrows at the audience and grinning, he, the audience gets a little turned off. It becomes a little too sadistic, a yes. little too glyphered. A little so too that's how he, child. he has to be stone-faced. Right. right. And then the first time he's stone-faced when it's happening, and I think that largely comes out of when they're doing the mop act and the things like that where he's supposed to be... Right. Right. Less uh, present, less alive. Kind of a passive object, which happens in so many of his movies too, yes. right? It's somebody else besides his dad, yes. mo- usually, but he's he, he's constantly being sort of treated as a projectile. Anytime they do that to him on stage, the audience laughs twice as much. So his dad, they start to get into the routine of his dad just yelling, face, face, face. Right, right. If he feels like he's starting to laugh or he's starting to enjoy it, that the dynamic is the dad always thinks that he's going to punish the kid. The kid's somehow going to get the better of the dad and the kid never seems to enjoy it. He's unreadable. Here's the Buster quote. The law read... That a child can't do acrobatics, can't walk a wire, can't juggle a lot of those things, but there's nothing said in the law. You can't kick him in the face or throw him through a piece of scenery. It feels like some Airbud logic of like, no one wrote that down, but right. I don't know. 
feels like that's a given that you shouldn't throw children through scenery. Well, they kept on like yeah, trying yeah, to like yeah, tighten yeah. the lines, and then Joe would the find another cat. space. And then like the mayor would show up again and be like, "I told you to stop doing this." And, right, and it got but to then, that. you know what? What? Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, please. You know, in his movies, that same dynamic is happening constantly, right? Yes. Where you're the audience is on is kind of on a seesaw in between laughing and gasping, right? right. And you even see it in our hospitality, the big rescue. You know, he always yes. always builds to some moment where danger and comedy kind of meet you know this is right. why all of this is so important not just as context for how he gets to the point where he's making movies but how his persona is honed because, it's also pretty interesting oh it's yeah. interesting but his persona is not something that's like designed in a lab of like how to make a relatable character you know it's like this weird push and pull over like two decades of him trying out different things and landing in this odd space. Can I say it? One of the other acts that I love that you talk about in the book is uh, when Myra is the mother's name. Myra. Myra. She's a, a, upstage playing sax. Oh yeah. Right. 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 right, right. <laughs> and Dad is using a straight razor, mm. shaving. Okay? okay. And Buster is then walking on stage, swinging a basketball. On a string. A basketball? Yes. Okay, okay, right. Basketball, right. big part of Buster's act as a kid. Okay. It was like... Like an old-fashioned basketball, obviously. The basketball uh, yeah, was like yeah. his rosebud. It was like the one nice present he got mm. for being a good boy, and then they worked it into the act a lot. Right. Basketball on a table. That's yes. all you need for comedy. But like, that's what I'm saying. Like, that that was their act. It yes. was... She was playing saxophone. Right. He was <laughs> shaving. Right. And the audience is being like, oh, he's going to sh- cut his throat. Right, yeah, with sure, this sure, spinning sure. basketball on a rope. Right. It's so right. bizarre. Well, like, yeah, this no domestic scenario. Yeah. Something totally. for everyone. Totally. But you don't like to shave? Well, then you must love the saxophone. Here's <laughs> another thing that will be so key for the rest of his career in terms of how his, like, uh, sensibility in comedy is set up is... That the tension, right? Yes. Clearly setting yes. up the stakes, like the tension. Right. right. How right. could right. things right. go wrong here? Because he's not someone who's trying to like. There's there's the quote here that you know you can easily poke holes in. I don't know if we can pull up the exact verbatim one, but in um what is it? My life in slapstick, which is the autobiography. My wonderful world of slapstick. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Uh, that is him sort of as told to, telling his life story in his later years. And, and Buster tried to define the difference between him and Chaplin and their screen personas, the, the tramp versus the sort of Buster in quotes persona. And his thing he said was the tramp is always trying to, like, get away with something. The tramp is always sort of trying to pull one over. He's trying right. to avoid working. He's yep. trying to get ahead. He knows what he's doing. And Buster's kind of oblivious, right? Um, there, there's an innocence to Buster swinging a basketball around his head on a rope, even as that seems an absurd thing to do. It's his magic as a performer is he's able to convey that he genuinely doesn't understand that's a dangerous act. <laughs> right. And it's so much about setting up, well, okay, you're swinging a basketball and there's a guy here with a razor. I know the ways in which this could go wrong. And so often the magic in a Buster movie yes. is like, somehow it goes Buster, right. Buster, right. right. Yeah, and then it figures itself out. It right. figures itself yeah, out yeah, in yeah, a way yeah. that feels like this guy is somehow rewriting the laws of logic and physics and time around him just by existing. But yes, all this stuff, playing with the ball, yeah. um, uh, fucking with his parents. Um, it, it is this weird, uncomfortable balance of like uh, Joe Sr., a piece of work, an alcoholic, an angry man. Uh, but Buster genuinely seemed to take to these things, even though he was working in a way that no child should work. This was not by any accounts a case where they were like drilling stuff into him in a way that was abusive. Him being in this environment was obviously fairly abusive to begin with, 
But there was this weird X factor of he genuinely seemed to avoid injury. Uh, many times they would go to a town. They would get like inspect, get him inspected. Right. Or or like, right. like the, the, the mayor, state the governor, would, the right, senator yeah. would be like, this, we're going to be the fucking people to finally shut this act down. We're going to fucking open up the books and realize every bone in this kid's body is broken. And they'd look at him. They'd be like, seems happy. Body fine. It yes. was um, yes, that yes. indestructible quality. Right. Yeah. Uh, Massachusetts thought I was a midget. Buster Keaton says uh-huh. at one point. So I guess they thought he was like, yeah, uh, a man pretending to be a child. Yes. Um, yeah. It won- eventually in 1907. But the more they try to prove and and fail, the more his star increases. Sure, right, because yeah. it's like, this sort of feels like cruelty-free entertainment to the masses of like, I don't know, I just read in the paper that this kid's happy. Um, right. Well, but in 1907, when he's about 12, they get served with warrants in New York City, and, like, he's barred from performing until he's 16. Only in New York State, though. Only in New York. Because of state law. But because New York was the center of vaudeville, they have to then switch things up and start touring? Is that sort of what happens there? Yeah, they were always touring. I mean, that's what vaudeville was. But it's just that New York was the most lucrative. and Yeah. 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 So that was definitely, that was a tough two years for them where they had to stay in New York. And also, he's growing up. So, like, the kid thing is getting less and less. He's going through the classic, is this still funny anymore? Are we finding him cute anymore? He's having to, like figure out how to evolve the persona a bit. The dad also started drinking a lot more in that right. era. So, yeah, there's this period in his teens where the act was was in transition. It started to get some negative reviews, although he continued. It seems like Keaton continued to sort of charm his way out of it, but his dad was becoming less functional, both as a father and as a performer. Yeah, and right. the critics were going like, well, this is still funny, but are we like a year away from this getting old? It feels like it starts to become more Homer versus Bart Simpson. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> right? Where like he's choking Bart. Yeah. And, and there's like a scary more aggressive. part to it. Yes, yeah. Right. Like how how real is this? Right. And Buster would say like, oh, it got to, I, we start the show, I smell the whiskey from across the stage. I know this is going to be a bad one. You know? It's suddenly everything yes, got right. more when I hostile, more tense. Across. Uh, 1916 seems to be when they finally abandoned the dad yes. in California. Yeah, this is such a biopic moment, right? It's impossible not to imagine the drama of that moment because it's him the moment mother, that, right. yeah, he and his mother basically because the mom asks them, Myra asks Buster, on a train, yeah. right? I mean, can't you see this scene? Like they're yeah, on a train seriously. going to their next gig and she basically says, I can't take it anymore because right. yeah. the father's become abusive. You know, he's drinking all the time. He has two younger siblings at this point who are totally dependent on the income that Buster is bringing in. Well, this is right. This other wild dynamic is that Buster is the breadwinner of the family. Meanwhile, his two siblings are being raised in a, 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 a like uh, indescribably more normal childhood. Right. Because they now have means. They're like at a boarding school. They have creature comforts. Mm-hmm. They're right. getting education. Yeah. Buster never went to school. At one point they said. They sent him to school for one day once. Right. There yes. was this idea of he like. He went to school for hard knocks. Hey. Well, True. There was this idea that, like, uh, Ben, you will like this, uh, th- that, like, well, if we're touring, maybe when we're in the town, send him to school during the day before the night of the show. He'll do, like, he'll pop in for a day, you know? He'll sit in on classes or whatever. And he goes to one class, one school, the first time they try this out. And he had these routines so, like, baked into his brains. And it had to both participate in and watch so many acts that were based around, like, kids misbehaving in school that anything the teacher said to him he or not said to him said to the class any question posed he had like a a snappy comeback to he had like a fucking (laughs) one-liner 
<laughs> to the point where within 45 minutes, she was like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You're Which is never something that you don't think of that he was actually a verbal comic in those right. days, right? right? Like you go crazy trying to think because the act was never filmed, of course, right? right? Like most vaudeville acts weren't. Like it changed all the time. A lot of it really was based on things like vocal impressions, songs. Ben was asking. You know, this. snappy comebacks, right. like you say. So yeah. even though we think of him as the, you know, the ultimate pantomimist and the guy who never speaks, there was actually a big verbal and sung element. sell one-liners. Is that why... Silent films obviously were silent films and they were successful. Mm -hmm. But when they were starting to bring in sound, people were like, well, this will never work. Would they just kind of like, because I'll, I'll just go see a show if I want to hear comedy or whatever. Is that why? Because like when you now learn of like the, you know, during the transition to sound, the people were like, fad. Mm -hmm. That's well, crazy. people in the industry were like Louis B. Mayer thought that, right. Irving Thalberg thought that, but audiences loved sound. I know right they loved the it, but it's just weird that anyone would think like, well, no one's going to want to be able to hear anything. <laughs> Does like, that happen basically every I guess so. single it just time? It's weird. That of course. <laughs> you mean every time there's a technological yeah, change? That there's some any stylistic like, shift change. in the medium? Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, that's not what people but actually like, want. Do you, like, yeah. would Louis B. Mayer be sitting there being like, if people wanted to hear Buster Keaton talk, they could go see him talk? You know, like they could hear that on a stage. Like that's that's what the stage is for, and the films. Not only that, are for but you this. have radio. Like right, you have radio, Ben and right. I, we we had a walk around the circumference of Central Park after watching Sherlock, and he was sort of asking we ate about a hot dog. Like, we ate, which we felt ate hot very dogs. very yeah. Era. That's very early twentieth century. Coney Island and knee high. We <laughs> talked about vaudeville. <laughs> <laughs> but Ben was asking, like, so he was verbal. So he like knew how to do verbal gags, and I was like, yeah, he did. And it's interesting watching both Three Ages and Hospital or Hospitality. Three Ages in particular, his characters talk a lot more than they do in the later films. Even if you're not throwing up yeah. intertitles to show his dialogue, in the later films, you rarely even see him open his mouth. The character is portrayed as being more silent in his day-to-day -day life rather than you, just you, the audience, aren't hearing him. And I think that's really him discovering himself, you know? Doesn't need it. It's funnier if this character is sort of a mystery to the people around him as well, not just the audience. But like, yeah, we were saying the, you know, in the in the 30s when he's at MGM, they try to pair him up with Jimmy Durante, who's like the exact opposite of who he is as a performer in so many ways. And it's like these guys are both megastars, but they're coming from different tracks at that point. And Durante is someone who's like incredibly famous, but from the radio. He's got the schnoz, right? right that like, was this guy's thing. got a funny look and he can say things and sing songs and whatever. But like he's not a physical comedian. He's a funny presence. The idea of them in a buddy comedy does not work at all. It's so no. wrong. And they kept on doing it over and over again. It's like mashing, you know, two Barbies together. Right, or peanut something. butter and pickles I or whatever. I find them yeah. interesting, but they're, they're odd to watch. And you're like, Buster knows how to sell a verbal gag better than Durante knows how to do a physical gag. But it still feels incorrect to watch them do it. David. What? You like games? Nope. Yes. You do. Don't, don't. I love games. I here. love games. Let's barrel through. You like video games? Yeah. Bored. Yeah. Here, but Mind? Not, not B-O-R-E-D, yeah, to quote yeah. Norm MacDonald. You like games that keep you engaged, right? Yeah. Let me describe a game you would hate. Okay. A game where no one wins. Uh, you're talking about the waiting I'm game. talking about the waiting game. When it comes it, to hiring, uh, what were you going to say? I didn't want to wait for you to say it. Well, you just can't wait for great no, talent to find you. Can't. You got to find them first with Indeed. Yeah. When you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract 
interview, and hire. AIH, as I always say, all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. This is what they do. Tell, th- David, tell them what they do. Streamline hiring, powerful tools that help you find match candidates. That's what they do. They've got this service. Instant match. 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. I love it. According to Indeed US. Uh, And it makes hiring in one place really easy because candidates, like say, you know, you're using Indeed candidates, Mm -hmm. you invite to apply, are three times more likely to apply to a job than one they can only see in search. David, that is just one of the many things I love about Indeed. They show you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description mm. immediately after you post. So you can yes. hire faster, and it matches you with the quality candidates instantly. And you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. even better in my eyes. Look, yeah. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring platform delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined according to Talent Nest 2019. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. David, I, I demand that you do a call up to action. Okay, great. Uh, start hiring now with $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash check. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash check. Indeed.com slash check. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. Bye. But yes, the, 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 the shift is happening. Is starting to happen. Uh, where are we in the context? Yeah, well, so yeah. you know, right at this point, eventually he, he breaks up back, the act. Goes back 1916. To the act right. is broken up. His mom goes to Detroit. It sounds like uh, that's where she settles. Well, I, guess. I mean, his parents ended up. His parents ended up basically following him around for the rest of right. his yeah. life. Like this is a crazy thing about the, the three Keatons or the five Keatons, mm-hmm. including his siblings, is that they never really stopped living at least very close to each other, if not actually in the same house. No, right. I mean, Joe, Joe Sr. is obviously in our hospitality. Uh, uh, Joe Schenk, a booking manager for Marcus Lowe, mm-hmm. who was early in whatever, the Keaton. You you must know this thing. I hate reading this. <laughs> okay, well, I can set up stuff. who Joe Schenk is because he's yeah. a huge character in Buster's life. He, he, he was a, a mogul, right? right? Yes, one, of the, yeah. one of the many Jewish movie moguls who right. came from another industry, which in his case was the amusement park industry, right? Yes. It makes complete sense that that would sort of flow into, you know, Nickelodeon's theater, movie productions, mm-hmm. right. et cetera. And he becomes an independent producer who, for all of those golden years that we're talking about of the 1920s, is underwriting Buster's movies. He's yeah. he's funding his production company, the Buster Keaton Productions. Yeah. And he is also, importantly, Buster Keaton's brother-in-law, because right. Keaton's not married yet, but when he marries, yes. he will marry the sister of the Talmadge sisters who were two big Silent movie stars, Norman yes. Constance Talmadge. Who is the female lead in Our Hospitality, her final acting role ever. Yeah, not wild. really an actress. No. But. He was also producing Fatty Arbuckle shorts at this time, right? Like, he he's the one who thinks to put Keaton and Arbuckle together. Well, it's, it's such a fascinating thing where you're like, you, you, once again, you think about the confluence of all these things happening, right? He's sort of hitting developmental ages where he's going to need to figure out how his persona changes right. if he's no longer he's the little up. kid, right. right? He's starting to mature. Then also they're leaving Joe. So he needs to become a solo act. He needs right. to figure out who he is comedically outside of that and specific dynamic. And movies are coming in. So, and also right, yeah. Joe is no longer steering his career. So it's like he's got to make choices. He's got to figure out who he is in a changing body and who he is removed from the context of this other comedic figure. Yeah. And movies are coming up. Shank is the one who goes like, you should meet 
Arbuckle. Roscoe. Right. Right. And and basically, like, just sends him to go visit the set. Right? Yeah. I mean, it was actually a guy he knew from vaudeville that sent him there. But yeah, Joe Skank was sort of the, the connector between the two of them. And that's another biopic right. moment Lou, for Lou me. Anger, is, that, is that the vaudeville guy? Yeah, I don't know. There's yeah, various yeah. people who are credited for maybe nudging them all. But it makes story. complete yeah. sense right. because, you know, he was a star in vaudeville. Arbuckle's right. a star in movies. They obviously knew each other's work, right? Yeah. And so it's just the moment where their paths cross. And it's another great biopic scene, yeah. right? That's the, the chapter about pancakes in the book. Yeah. Because Keaton remembers in that same As Told To memoir that the morning of the day he met Arbuckle, which changed his life and brought him from the stage to the screen, he stopped for pancakes at this at this chain pancake restaurant, which, you know, sent me down a whole rabbit hole of like, what was it to go out for pancakes yes. in 1917? Mm. I could do with pancakes. I want some pancakes. It was the right big now. thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what, sure. What's the name of the chain again? The Child's Restaurant yes. chain. But they like their whole thing was like any type of pancake you want. It just looks so appealing from the old yeah. photos. Just a white tiled room where yeah. you can get all the pancakes you want. Incredible. Um, but yeah, it's a, you know, Roscoe like opens up the camera and he immediately sees in this guy, not just that he's obviously like uh he respects his work as a comedian, but he sees how Buster kind of like lights up at being on set and realizing right. like oh this is a whole other fucking medium with a lot of new possibility and so roscoe immediately sort of goes like here's the camera here's how this works here's what you can do with it immediately takes him under his wing and buster who i think was thought like let's get him in there as a performer let's maybe help him have him help write gags is also now getting really into the technology of the thing and very quickly but, sort of unofficially becomes assistant director. Right. And passes on, the shorts on and certain sort of tenets like he doesn't really use a script, right? Yeah. Arbor, neither did Keaton. Yeah. Really. He didn't like write down a script. Right. Until the MGM era. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Arbuckle is like, just shoot lots and lots of footage and you will like edit it into the best parts. Yeah. Which I guess was not totally typical at the time. I don't know. Like this is being presented to me in this research dossier. I didn't know that Arbuckle was known for having a huge shooting ratio, actually. He was, like, shooting over abundance of footage. And Keaton would do that, too, right? Like, you know. I guess by by Senate standards, right? Arbuckle was coming from the Max Senate Keystone studio where they were so, such cheapskates. Yeah, they were just getting it done fast. Right. So Arbuckle was quite artful, really, for somebody making movies in 1917. I've really never seen much Fatty Arbuckle stuff. Like, I I, I mean, this is not. That stuff, if you want to talk about being a completist, it's very easy to tack on the 14 shorts they made together. And they're really, really interesting to see. We'll discuss at least some of them. Yeah, I I think we should throw one maybe into the Patreon episode, which we'll discuss May 11th. But they're all, right now at the time we're recording this, Criterion has their series, and there's a sub-series called Buster's Beginnings that contains, I believe they have all four Mm -hmm. of the Arbuckle Keaton shorts. And it's right, yeah, because like Keaton is figuring out his comedic persona, but in shorts that are not being driven by him. Right, so you get to see him do things that he would never do in his own movies, like cry, laugh you know, play various characters. He didn't really have that set character yet. Sometimes he had the pork pie hat. You know, he usually had the deadpan, but right. he really is just a utility player who's doing whatever he needs to do what in his company. What is Arbuckle's thing? Like, apart from being a big, garrulous man, like, what is his on-screen persona like? How would you describe it? I mean, yeah, he's it's not what you would expect at all. He's, no. he's extremely sweet. Yes. Uh-huh. I mean, because right. he's associated with this scandal, which we can get to later sure, on, like, yes. right. I think maybe people would think that he... That he has some of that Chaplin kind of raunchy side, the way Chaplin right. was always sort of like, you know, waggling his eyebrows at the ladies there's or something. A, there's a lecherous quality that is not there. He's right. almost like a children's entertainer. But there's maybe that's a, yes. why it was even more shocking to the public, right, when he was then in this sex scandal. There's right. something very childlike about him without him seeming dumb. 
Right. Or infantile, you know? He's a nice boy. He's very gender-bending, and there's a yes. lot about this in the book, too. Like, he wore drag wonderfully. He had this mm. character, Miss Fatty. Right. And when he became Miss Fatty, he just, it was, um, there was no misogyny in it at all. You know, I, there's some scenes where he, as Miss Fatty, flirts with Buster. Right. Mainly in Goodnight Nurse, which I think is the best, the funniest short they made together. I watched Goodnight Nurse. Isn't it so good? Yeah, he's covered in like blood. Uh, Buster. Yeah. Oh like, yeah, there's tons the of dark person humor, who gory works humor in it. Yeah. yeah, his smock is like covered in blood. But they have this whole drawn out thing where they're like each flirting with each other, yeah. and it goes on for so long. In a way where I'm like, this bit is very like modern. Like I could see someone doing right. an the improv fact that scene it takes so like long. this, sure, sure, and sure. just like it was an it improv scene, really. You know, no. they were ad libbing it. And a fun thing about that scene is you can see them. You can see Buster trying not to crack up, yeah. right? I mean, it's really clear that they're friends. That they had a very strong off-screen friendship at that time, you know, and mentorship. So that that's that short is great for that reason too. But but it's once again very similar to Bugs Bunny, where the joke becomes. You know, it goes from being, oh, he's going to put on a dress and pretend to be a woman to get the better of someone or whatever, right? And then the joke quickly becomes, oh, he's, like, really in this. The joke is that there's no joke anymore. The joke is that he's not doing it mockingly, you know, that it's not just a trick, that it's, like, such a full transformation. But I do think, to some extent, Arbuckle's persona was maybe more malleable then, you know, when Lloyd Keaton and Chaplin come and all have such clearly defined, this is what my movie star persona is. Arbuckle was at such an early stage that just being funny on screen was enough to give you a reputation rather than necessarily needing a continuity of here is the classically defined Arbuckle leading role. Yeah, maybe he had less of a character, but right. he had a lot of the skills Keaton did. Like performer. he was he was a really yeah. good mover, yes. right? Especially for a huge guy like he was, right? Yeah. Like for his girth. Right. He's really light on his feet. He yes. could do falls. He could dance. There's a, a lot. Of he the had Chris incredible Farley aim. He has a lot yeah. of funny jokes about like throwing a hatchet behind him without looking, and it lands in the center of a target or something. He yeah. was really good at weird sleight of hand things like that. I think he was more just kind of a great performer than he was like the clearly defined type. I, I mean, you have to ask what would have happened if not for the scandal, and if yeah. his career had continued on through the twenties. You know, he could have completely redefined. Right. He who he was a new persona or it was the whatever. other thing you talk a, a lot about in your book but he like he hated the fatty name sure i mean you know you one might not want to be called fatty of all course. the time and people called him roscoe yes. to his face or whatever like he was professionally roscoe, but it was one right? of those things where like that probably was the handle that made him a star of course sure. it was sort of a gilded cage kind and of it was thing. in the title often you know he, right. a lot of his keystone movies were you know fatty's tin type tangle and right. fatty's magic pants was right. a great title if we have to pants, it's pretty good if we have to sell the fatty in order for me to be a movie star, sure, then I guess I'll that's where it. I'm stuck. But it's but it's my persona is right. not based in me being fat though. It's not like fatty Arbuckle shorts are about him like getting well, waylaid by. No, they don't. He didn't really do weight jokes. And no. I mean, this is actually a thing I try to do in the book is like reinvent him as Roscoe. I yes. really I feel like great injustice. Well, the greatest injustice that's been done him is that he's vaguely remembered as this kind of pervy rapist and murderer, right, right. right? Which not only did he not commit those acts, but it seems like from everything we know now about this woman who died at a party that he threw in 1921, no one was raped or murdered. No. Right. right? I mean, there was, was someone who so died much of it was for like all kinds Randall of... Randall right. like weird yellow journalism yeah, stuff. Yeah, tabloid. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a kangaroo court situation. Just, right. I, I'm not an expert on, on all of this, but it's pretty evident that like there were no, no crimes committed except yes. for maybe a bunch of drunk people not taking enough care with somebody right. who was falling down drunk at a party. But to reduce it greatly, it it felt like the core of the thing was there was this growing moral panic around the movies 
and the shifting, like, sort of, are are they lowering the public morals? I feel like this is less true. We of need the a movies. scapegoat to punish. Right. The less true of the movies we are going to cover. Because I feel like Buster Keaton movies are fairly chaste and lovely. His character is yes. very chaste. But, like, yeah. you watch some of these movies from the 20s, and it is kind of crazy how scandalous they feel. Yes. Like, and how, like, loose the whole sort of morality of them is. Not just, like, what they're showing you, but just how right. everyone's behaving. And the papers are already it's, complaining about the fact that these kids are having their brain rotted at the Nickelodeon. Right. God forbid they throw a nickel down and watch a thing that's 45 right. seconds rather long. Than, rather than shovel more coal or right. whatever they're supposed so to do. So then when on top of that, the movies are kind of bawdy, and then you hear that the private lives of these right. people who are becoming celebrities and being written about are kind of bawdy, they're like, we need to stop this whole fucking chain. I mean, so if a woman ends up dead at a Roscoe Arbuckle party, then someone has to pay for this. You hated Babylon, right? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. I went I went in with such a good the, heart. Yeah. Yeah. The wildness of that time. I mean, part of I think why I was so disappointed is I had just spent five years reading about all that stuff. Yes. So I couldn't wait to see how Chazelle treated it. And right. the fact he played so fast and loose with so many things. Which just, it's not even about accuracy. It's just all the lost opportunities of the how much more yes. interesting the real thing was. Yeah. I He's like that movie, thing. but that movie is very disconnected from reality yeah. other than in like humongous broad strokes. Very, very broad. Yes. yes. Yeah. So uh, Buster Keaton, okay, so he's working with Fatty Arbuckle. Like you say, he's sort of assistant directing as well mm -hmm. as being on screen. He's learning the trade. Uh, he was drafted and served in World War One, but he mm -hmm. didn't uh, He was an fight. entertainer. Yeah. Right. He got an ear infection apparently. That wasn't why he, I think he just got in so late that the armistice yes. had almost, he says, had almost right, been signed. like by the yeah. time I was going to be at the front, it was over. Right. Uh, if you like go to war, if you get drafted and then you get something like an ear infection, do you still get a purple heart? You do not get a purple heart for getting an ear infection. But you know, you would you get, get like, like a, a service medal. Or like a purple ear. You get a purple lollipop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just think if you have an injury that is unrelated to combat, but it happens when you're, you've been drafted. Do you want to know a purple heart fact that I know that's so crazy? Please. Okay, I think I may have learned it on a podcast. When the U.S. was preparing to invade Japan, the island mm -hmm. of Japan, uh, as part of the end of World War II, we minted like so many purple hearts preparing for the what that was going to be, right? Like this really awful... Like Iwo Jima and stuff, right? Post Iwo Jima, like we're, we were getting ready for what we assumed before we dropped the bomb, mm -hmm. what we assumed would be like a very grueling campaign on the actual mainland. And we still use those Purple Hearts that they minted. They We have not depleted the That's supply. wild. They minted like a quarter million or something. And we have not depleted that supply. So if you get a Purple Heart, it's from 1945. I mean, I guess that's good news in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, none of it's good. Like, you know, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's just crazy. There was some point in the last couple of years where I was uh, spiraling about any number of things. That Maybe was it was when uh, uh, the stuff was starting to go down in the Ukraine or uh, any of the numerous times we've been worried about uh, nuclear retaliation from countries who are being mocked okay. on Twitter. Sure, 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 sure. And you were like, what are you so stressed out about? And I was like, I don't want a world war. I don't want to get drafted. And you were like, Griffin, you're too old to be drafted. Yeah, you're, you're not on their list. It is such a <laughs> yeah, bone yeah, deep yeah. anxiety of mine that I, I did not clock until like two years ago where you're up like, oh, right. I'm like wasted. I'm like a fucking bird. They don't want you. <laughs> they want all those kids on like TikTok or whatever. Right. Like those kids get drafted. First of all, right? everything with my body is wrong. But <laughs> yeah, even right. still, I was like, I'm young. And you were like, hey, hot news, buddy. <laughs> You're, you're no longer eligible for American Idol and you wouldn't get drafted in the war. You're not so young anymore. Oh, wow. What's the ceiling? <laughs> the of upside of Idol? aging. No longer yeah. cannon fodder. I know. American Idol's like 28 or 29. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. No longer right, we fodder. should move along. Um, yeah. 
So uh, the first film to sh- star Buster Keaton apparently is The Saphead. Yes. Uh, an adaptation of a Winchell Smith play. So this is the one that he just gets cast in. It's right. a Winchell Smith play that Douglas Fairbanks had done a loose adaptation of, but always wanted to do a, a more uh, literal, uh, faithful adaptation of the play. And then as the time goes on, they kick him out of it. They put Buster in in the sort of second role. And Buster just steals the movie so much that it kind of becomes a Buster Keaton film. Is that fair? Yeah, it's a say? weird film to watch because it's really pretty much a dramatic role, right? Yeah. A supporting dramatic role even. But because he's doing the deadpan thing. Yeah, because right, his deadpan right. is so pronounced and he's making such choices, right? I mean, yeah. he's making such strong choices that it just it, it really stands out. He only gets to do a wee bit of physical comedy at the end, but but it's great. The stock the stock floor scene. To to make a a a, a semi-modern comparison point. It's maybe a little similar to something like Forty Eight Hours, where it's like Eddie Murphy gets slotted into this movie. He is a supporting character in right. Forty Eight Hours, and then like, everyone's you like, the you know what? Whatever this guy's doing, right. that's what the movie is. Now. <laughs> right. And there's the structure of this movie around him. He is not the main creative force, but everything starts bending to like, well, this is obviously where the juice is. So while he's making the sap head, mm-hmm. Joe Shank is that Shank? How do you Skank. say it? Skank? Sorry, sorry, Joe. R.I.P. Uh, buys Charlie Chaplin's lot, calls it the Keaton Studio, mm-hmm. hands him a contract for $1,000 a week, plus 25% of the profits. That sounds like a good contract. Yes. They don't hand out contracts like that anymore. He never had any shares in the company, though. It's this uh, funny sure. thing right, where they're right. like, here's your own company, and here's your salary, and here's all this. By the way, the company has yours. Uh, and yeah, he a, was a horrible businessman throughout his, yeah. his whole life. Never right, cared. Right, because right, he just liked to do it, right? He yeah. was like, I get to make movies. What do I care? Right, he's like, that's me? not the right. point. Yeah. And he starts to do two reelers, right? Including his first being the high sign. Hello, Dana. Your Twitter handle, of yes. course. Yeah. Um, two reelers. Explain what that is, because I will admit something uh-huh. before I listen to the book. Mm-hmm. I never knew what the fuck you guys were <laughs> saying. When we and said two reeler? All the time, and I would just be like, okay. Well, you know, you got to reel a film. Right, but that doesn't have a whole movie on it. It just has some of the movie. It has 10 minutes on right. it. Right. So yeah, two know. reelers, 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah it's a 20-minute short. Yeah. But, like, that was such common parlance that that was how, like, everyone understood the relationship between reels and time. It wasn't just, like, some industry insider term. The Three Ages poster, the tagline is, like, three ages, a, uh, a three stories told in six parts. And I was like, six part. It's not like they're split into chapters, each of the stories. It's like, oh, no, they're literally just conveying to the audience this one's an hour long. Um, right, right. Even right. though there aren't those demarcations within the narrative. Right. right. We will talk more about the shorts later. Yes. On a separate episode, guys. Yes. So, but, but yeah, I don't know how much, how much more should we cover before we get to three ages. I mean, I think all you need to know is right. that that was his kind of training ground. That's and that's right, what right. most comedies were at that time. Nobody right. was really making feature length comedies. Then Chaplin started doing it in 1921. Right. right. And then, you know, the, 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 the moment came for gets, Keaton in 23. Right. And, and 23 is also when Arbuckle gets arrested. Right? No, no, that or happened that tw- in 21. That oh, that's yeah. 21. He was okay. in three trials over the next year or so. So by 1923. Hey. Hung jury twice. Yeah. But yeah, by 23, his career is essentially over. I mean, there's a little bit of a renaissance right before he died, but he he's behind the camera now, not in front yes, of the camera. Yes, right. He has to change his name, which is direct, sort of interesting. gag writer. Also interesting is like a biopic. I mean, different yes. biopic, but like that's sort of a fascinating final act. Also, Buster Mad- marries Natalie Talmadge, mm-hmm. uh, which we mentioned. Uh, and, uh, right, like you say, you know, uh... But it's this odd... Features, it's, there it's are this, the right. new hot stuff. It's this odd journey of, like, he even resented the fact that post-SAP had, they didn't let him jump straight into features, where he's like, I could have gotten, like, another six years ahead of Chaplin and Lloyd, right? And basically, they threw me back to shorts. 
And it was not because they didn't believe in him. There was still this question of like, does anyone want to sit? That are, are feature length comedies a thing? Can yeah, you well, I mean, shorts were part of the the way you watch movies, right? right the same right. way you'd have a, a cartoon beforehand or a newsreel right. or whatever. You watch a short comedy and then and then a full length drama, probably. They were like, that's the ideal format for comedy, and then the main feature is a drama or it's something a little. Oh, more and the fact serious. is, thank God he had a few years of making shorts because those are some of the greatest American comedies Absolutely. ever made. And right. it also makes him like so perfectly. He's he's worked through almost everything by the time he starts making features. But yes, he, he's, and you know. Lloyd also kicks off in 21, right? That's Sailor yeah. Made Man. That's like his first, yeah. Right. You're going from vaudeville act to then figuring out how to be a vaguely solo act to then, you know. Yeah, I watched his like uh, safety last. Safety yes, last. that's the big one. Hanging clock. from a clock. Yes. Clock. Yeah. Which people often misattribute to Buster. Yeah, people think that's Buster. I feel well, like that everybody is blurs all the silent comics together. Yes. You know, I can't yeah, tell you how many yeah. times I'd have a conversation saying, "I'm working on a book on Buster Keaton." I'd either hear, like, oh, he "I love when he dance? hangs off the clock," uh-huh. right. right, or "I love when he eats his shoe," right? Yes. One being Lloyd, one being Chaplin. So yes. it makes sense if you've never seen a silent movie, but it's sort of in people's mind. It's black and white. There's a funny guy. It yep. does. He does feel like he should have eaten a shoe at some point. It does kind of feel like something he would do and not. Except that it's a poverty gag. Which is not not a very Keaton thing. Right. No, it's more that he just would be like, yeah, I'm eating a shoe. What do I care? You know, like. uh, Well, but it's. uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll we'll define this. But yeah, going from from vaudeville to solo act to then shadowing Arbuckle as both an on camera performer and filmmaker to Saphead is almost this weird thing that comes like surprisingly early. Where they finally go, okay, you're a leading man, but now go back to shorts. Now reset yes. in shorts and they're yours. Right. You're the main voice on them, which then leads to to this point where they throw uh, the ability to make feature films at him, which Three Ages, the first movie we're talking about today, now that we've gotten through five hours of context, it's incredibly <laughs> important. Three Ages these was... These are also his most slight films. So, I agree. You know, it's worth the... Right. But, but Three Ages by design It's was, three shorts. Yes. Right, that are Be- being inter... Because uh, part of the insurance policy was if we're fucking wrong and this fails, we can just split this back up into three shorts and redistribute it back out, which they never did. The no. movie worked. It was a hit. And uh, it is sort of a par- parody of intolerance, right? Like there's sort yeah. of some element of him making right. fun of intolerance. I mean, it's a thing yeah. he did a the lot DW throughout his career is spoof different genres. And right. this is a spoof of a few different genres, right? Yeah. It's a spoof of the swords and sandals, gladiator yes. epic, like Ben-Hur, which had been a huge hit yes. a few years mm-hmm. before. Or wait, was maybe Ben Hur wasn't made yet? Actually, no. The original up. Ben, like the old, like silent Ben Hur. I think. I think it was twenty five though. I think it may have been yeah. a little bit later. Well, he, no, That's ben the one that was around, like uh, Ben Hur. He was actually the real Ben Hur. Yeah, he was <laughs> yeah. more of a sort of like, you know, <laughs> I think that came zero before. BC. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right, right, right. Exactly. But, no, because like the twenty five one right is where like so many people got stumped by horses making that movie. Right? Yeah. Like, sorry, go ahead. So Stop, wait, you said stomped by horses? Yeah, because like they have the chariot stuff, and like you know, safety was uh, you know not paramount concern back then. And Babylon is actually smart on that. You know? It wasn't yes. paramount the concern; danger. it was more of a universal concern. Going, <laughs> um, yes, Babylon right is very uh, is very smart on the uh, right. Yeah, you know. um, but, but no, he's spoofing yes. D.W. Griffith most obviously in right. Intolerance, yeah. right, with the trans historical epic thing, mm-hmm. but also all different genres of movie. I actually love the caveman stuff, even though it has some of the most, the stupidest gags. I'm such a sucker for caveman part. jokes yeah. of any I, kind. I think also just because it's so funny to see him in that outfit and 
I don't know. Yes, the caveman also, is sort of the funniest. You're like he's like fucking forty years ahead of the Flintstones in True. just the very basic like sliding down. A what is there. right? What is the the uh, ancient prehistory version of our modern like creature comforts and conveniences? Right, the stuff like the sundial watch. Yep. You know, is like uh, him using the um, the Roman helmet uh, as like a, a lock, a boot for the wheel, right? On on the wheel, right? Like that stuff is like so ahead of its time, and is still the kind of comedy we traffic in today. That does not feel uh, old at all. It is fascinating how much these two movies are like in conversation with their time in this very modern way, where he's like playing off of the tropes that people know from other popular culture at the time and subverting them. Apparently the um the safety lock thing mm-hmm. that was like a re- brand new invention at yeah. that time. Like a, there was like a spike that looked like a Roman helmet that was like whatever. It was the club of That's its like time. That's like doing right. the fucking NFT gag. Yeah, that's exactly. Like, right. he, he was like everyone would would get that. Like yeah. that that's you know this is the new thing to stop someone from stealing your car. I guess it was probably pretty easy to steal a car back then. I mean, but, he's always into old technology, right? When we yes. get to our hospitality, we'll talk about that old train. But, I mean, even though he himself was on the cutting edge of technology, yes. right, and just always interested in machines, a great tinkerer with machines, we are he loved looking train. back at the history of technology. So it makes sense right. that to him ancient Rome would be this source of, you know, let's figure out what we can do with a chariot. How many gags can we get out right. of a chariot? Well, Buster, I mean, a, you know, a pin for the entire miniseries, loves trains almost as much as Miyazaki loves planes. Like, anytime he can work a train into the thing. And I think part of it is the fact that, like, with the train, so much of the mechanism is visible on the outside, you know, that you have such an understanding of how it's working in real time in an inherently visual medium. But, yes, there is that thing where, like, there's this part of the Buster character, especially in Three Ages, but it it persists in a lot of his movies, where it's like, he's the one modern person in an ancient time, right? Mm-hmm. He sort of has this modern understanding of like, why wouldn't you just do this? You know, there's this very casual attitude to him just sort of, has, Ben and I, once again, we're talking after Sherlock Jr. And we were trying to like break down the comedic persona because it's so odd that he is able to, within the same movie, scene by scene, maybe even sometimes moment by moment, swing between being high status and low status, Right. That narratively, he is almost always under the boot, right? Right. Most Buster movies end up at their center being about a romantic rivalry, uh, you know, a a fair maiden who is uh, betrothed or entangled with some burly asshole guy. Wallace Beery type. Yeah. Yeah, Perfect example is uh, in the the three different time periods, the modern time period, there's this gag early on where the one suitor that's not Buster he hands his bank statement and it says first national bank yes. and Buster says last national bank. Exactly. Like the joke is about this guy is He doesn't so have money. He's not like low he's, status. He's, and he's, not he's a shlemiel. For, right. He's not good for the But you're the right, daughter. Griffin, that he's a shlemiel who can in an instant, like with a, with a gesture, he can transform into this kind of like elegant dandy as right. he does a couple times in the modern who segment. Can adapt so quickly, who is somehow smarter than everyone else without feeling like he's pulling one over on anyone else, you know? And I think that's that thing that Buster talked about where it's like, uh, there's a quote in here, but he he didn't want to have to think about making his character sympathetic to the audience, right? Mm-hmm. He, he thought that was sort of like a dangerous path to worry too much about likability. But also, this was just so bone deep in him after, you know, at this point he's been performing for 15 plus years. He just has such an innate sense of when the audience is on his side and when he isn't without having to intellectualize it. 
And he puts the character in situations where you're innately going to want to root for him because he's he's the more honest person, right? He's the less aggressive person. It's a thing that's fascinating about Three Ages. It's it's kind of, I think its biggest failing is this character is a little too aggressive in all three timelines. You the know? thing where he passes the note where he's like, lose the chump, I'm pretending to be sleeping behind right. you or whatever. Like, you're like, that's not going to work. No. Like, I mean, it's funny that it doesn't work. Like that's, Wait, but it's Wallace Beard who hands him that note. He's not the one who hands him oh, no, the note. No, you're right. It's Wallace Beard yes. who hands him the note. Right. Sorry, but but there are other bits in this where you're like, he's a little too competitive. Hmm. Whereas I feel like, like where they're doing the caveman competition. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously yeah. this movie ends up it's funny having three centerpiece competitions. Yes. Literally. But I also I just feel like, like the hitting yourself on the romantic head. rivalry thing, which once again, then, you know, it's, it's Popeye and Bluto. It's all right, of these right, fucking right. narratives. Well, uh, is very Bluto. Yes. yes. Very. Yeah. I feel like in later movies, it's so much more. He just loves this woman and wants her attention. It's less about, I got to get over on this guy. <laughs> and in three ages, he's trying to defeat three guys. You know, he's viewing it as a competition more than just like, I'm here and I wish she could pay attention to me. Yeah, the truest stories, you're right. The, the stories that are truest to his essence as a performer, I think, are not when it's Popeye and Bluto competing for a girl, though that happens right. a lot in the early phases. It's when he's either against the elements, like yes. Steamboat Bill Jr., right? He's against uh, mm -hmm. something something, something sort of faded, you know, or the train theft in the general. It's, it's when there's a big problem to solve, and he's this little guy trying to solve it. But even when you have the Wallace Beery type who, who ends up, you know, getting diminished as a character as the films go on, because, yes, the larger circumstances of the world around him are more of an obstacle than this guy. This guy is maybe just the final barrier. I think part of his charm and part of what makes him connect with audiences is that post three ages, he never knows that there's a competition going on, right? One of the most unsavory aspects of the guy who is his romantic rival is that that guy is viewing this like a fight, that he has to beat Buster. Right. And you look at our hospitality and he cracks this thing of like, the best thing could be Buster never knowing that everyone's trying right. to kill him. He, he's, he's sort of blissfully unaware. He's appealing to everyone's film. best right. nature and going like, that's dangerous to be firing pistols off in the air <laughs> like that. You know, he's almost looking out for he, everyone. Also, else. he deals with a waterfall, another in that movie. We'll talk about yeah. it, but like another sort of immovable object of nature. But, yeah, Three Ages, which is yeah. uh, Intolerance, uh, D.W. Griffith's epic that was sort of semi his response yes. to... Better known as I'm Not Mad or yes. I'm Not Owned. It's the ultimate I'm Not Owned movie. Uh, Birth of the Nation is like the biggest fucking hit and everyone immediately calls out that it's racist. Because well, it's very racist. Yes. It, it's just, it's 1915 like, racist. That's the thing about Birth I think of the Nation. I mean, I don't know how you feel about Birth of a Nation, but it's I think undeniably I'm not racist. not pro, let's just say. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it, you know, is a pioneering piece of visual storytelling, I guess, in some ways. Not really. I think this its is, reputation is overstated, right? This is my only point. But its influence is important. And, and that's why I think important. it still needs to be seen. Because by it was a hit. Right. right. But it sort of became this weird kind of like start of film 101. Yes. That maybe it didn't deserve to. Oh be. yeah, no, right. it gets yeah, kind exactly. of retconned into doing inventing all kinds of. You things. You need to show it to every do. fucking right. film school yeah, yeah, class yeah. in your syllabus. Um, but but, a huge hit and a very controversial film. This was right. the point I want to make. It's right. just that I think people now, when they try to approach *Birth of a Nation* as a historical document, they go, "I can't believe this horribly racist movie was popular and beloved in its day." And you're like, "It was controversial in its day. Right. 
it was still. a huge hit and it had big fans. Right. But even at the time, it got the same fucking discourse cycle that any controversy. Oh yeah, movie it was gets protested. Today. Absolutely, yes. people were like up in arms about it. And then yes, D.W. Griffith does this. I'm not mad. I'm so not mad. I'm gonna make an epic about how bad intolerance is set in three different time periods. Four. Four time oh, periods. You're, yeah, yeah it's, you're right. It's, yeah, but it's the same basic idea. But Three Ages is him riffing on that. Right. He's doing a parody of a movie that has been huge in the popular consciousness that also gives him this easy escape route if it doesn't work to just turn it into themed two reelers. Have you seen Intolerance? Of course, I'm sure you've seen Intolerance. I have not seen oh, it. Oh, no Intolerance is such a tough sit. <laughs> so boring. Yeah. But the thing it's really worth it for is the frame story. I mean, speaking of Father Time again, yeah, right? It's Keaton's version Gish, of the frame like story. Or the, the, the endlessly rocking cradle of time. There's yes. this crazy sort of, yeah. I mean, just the vision of women and intolerance is utterly nuts. You're either sort of like a snake dancing vamp, you know, who's going <laughs> to sure. bring down the entire Babylonian empire mm -hmm. or you're like a pure Lillian Gish virgin rocking a cradle for all eternity. I remember Lillian Gish, yes. So Buster's big take on Three Ages is obviously I'm going to take the structure from Intolerance, which everyone will get what I'm riffing on, and then my my sort of point, the the theme that is staying the same throughout the ages rather than being intolerant from one man to another is romantic courtship. Right. That basically he's saying that the social mores, the behaviors of men and women in painting a very broad brush remain the same regardless of the times around us is one of the things this movie has incredible gags in it. But you do feel that insurance policy quality of if this doesn't work, we'll split it into three shorts. Yeah, it doesn't the, it doesn't really hang together structurally. It doesn't. Some of them are way too short. Yeah. I don't they're know not like yeah. really commenting on each other or yeah. weaving out in interesting ways. You're just kind of seeing the same narrative three times, right. but with different clothing. And I love the idea so much when it Incredible. starts. I'm just like, oh, this is going to be so cool. And then you realize, right, like, no, it's right. Just right. this again now. But he's wearing a straw. But that's why, I mean, as we'll see in our hospitality, it's yes. it's it's so exciting to see the moment that he actually figures out, wait, here's how I tell, you know, a through composed story about real characters. Right. And it's so beautiful the when he hits from that first movie. The second movie is insane. I mean, I talk in the book a bit about the, the cinema of attractions. Right. Yes. Like this idea that in the early days of cinema, really early, like turn of the century that movies were about just seeing stuff, seeing right. stuff that was fun and interesting. Like, I've never seen, seen an Island? elephant. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of early cinema, but certainly Three Ages, still owes a kind of debt to that. Because even though it has this, you know, structure of the, the, the three different time frames, it really, the best moments are where it's sort of sketch comedy, yes. you know? Like, the moment that made me laugh out loud again rewatching it this morning, and I've seen this movie, you know, dozens of times, is when he gets served the crab in the restaurant in the uh -huh. modern story, and he's just, like, terrified of the crab <laughs> on his plate and jumps into the waiter's arms. It's such good physical comedy. It's so silly. It has nothing to do with the story. You know, those are the moments you watch Three Ages for. Yes. I, I Like, the bits that jump out to me that I just think are like, well, this is where he's totally nailing what his persona is as a leading man in a feature-length film. The the guilelessness that makes him still lovable, you know, is uh, even when he's doing something absurd, uh, the moment where he's at the dinner and the woman starts applying her makeup and he just looks over at her and then goes like, huh, reaches under the table, pulls out a kit. You don't quite understand what's happening. And then he starts wet shaving. <laughs> right. And right. it's just this logical leap that he is able to sell so well in his body language for, for how famous he is in his face largely being unchanging, right? He is so good at somehow playing thinking on screen without pantomiming it in any way where you can see the thought of, oh, huh, if she's doing that, I should do this. You don't quite know what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. 
And then the moment it comes together, it is so incredibly funny that he's now lathering up. Well, it's this like contamination logic that yes. he often has in the Arbuckle movies too, where somebody, some other character is doing some gesture that makes sense and he starts imitating it even though it doesn't make sense. Right. Another great moment, and this is again just how great his gestural comedy was, is when the girl who we need to talk about, Margaret Leahy, who we plays that woman. Mention, because yes, she's, uh, one she's a whole other, she's a, a big reason winner. the movie does not work in many Agreed. places. Yes. But, uh, but she's doing her little walkie fingers on the couch as she flirts yes. with Wallace Berry, and then he just starts doing it as well. But then he gets so caught up in his own little cute walkie fingers that he's right. just he's doing it to do it. it. Yeah. Right. right. There's this part of Buster that's great, which is like, oh, I get it. And he doesn't, but he does it so confidently and he can't be corrected. Just, but like you say, like there's, there's refining of the persona happening here. Uh, Margaret Leahy, just to mention, mm -hmm. uh, had won a beauty contest, correct? Um, and uh, the pr One of the prizes in the contest was to be in a movie, It basically? was to be in a movie called Within the Law, yes. uh, opposite Norma Talmadge. And after three days on set, Frank Lloyd uh, said that she couldn't act and... Um, he was basically shunted off onto Keaton. Like, right. nobody like, cared who the leading her. ladies were in his comedies. Right. Joe Skink, I think, even said, it doesn't matter. You know, all she has to do is stand there we essentially and look pretty. We have a contractual obligation to put her in a movie, put her in a movie where it, it, what she's doing matters even less. Um, yeah. And yes. you see how much it Apparently, does matter it when you see, for example, the shaving scene. That's mm -hmm. not Margaret Leahy, right? That's yes. Virginia Fox, who was a leading lady in a lot of later Keaton movies, in some, some shorts before that, I think. I don't know if she was in any features, but she was in a bunch of shorts with him. And she's funny. Like, she... Yes. Right. She has some sense of like gestural comedy. She knows why the joke is meant to work. And it makes a huge difference, even though it is true that, you know, in most of his films, the exception is Sybil Seely, who's a wonderful leading lady who actually got her own stuff to do. But most of the time, his leading ladies sort of are just the pretty prize you win right. at the end. And but was, it still matters in silent movies that you, you, that you can act. act. Right. Like he this. was sort of reductive about, like, it doesn't matter as long as they're pretty. Yes. You know, he didn't view it as a priority in his films, but it is a differentiating factor between the ones that are good also, and the ones Silent that are film acting just seems like a very specific skill. Not that regular act, film acting isn't, but like, yes. yeah, like that seems like something you could really do disastrous. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of beauty contest castings right. and Claire Bow actually came from that yeah. background. But yeah, Margaret Leahy was a real dud. And I think that's part of what makes a lot of this movie feel less alive than it could. Right. Well, like acting is reacting, right? You need someone who has that. I think a lot of times when you put people in movies who do not come from an acting background, right, who are celebrities in some other field, that's the thing you notice is they're putting way too much spin on the ball when it's their dialogue, when it's their close-up, when it's their moment where they're leading the scene. And then when someone else is doing something, they kind of go blank. There's the term camera napping that mm -hmm. I saw in JJ's research was that the thing they kept on yelling at Lady about while they were filming of like... <laughs> yeah, so that she'd be caught napping. Right. But this would be like, she'd be doing what she was supposed to do, what they'd rehearse, and then right. Buster would have an idea and try yeah. something else out. And if she didn't follow... That was being, but that I think was it's also napping, that thing right. of like, what do I need to do in this scene? Right. And you're so intensely focused on what you need to do next that you're not paying attention to what's going on around you. And this is, I think, important for the way Keaton worked, you know, yeah. is that he really did consider everyone a collaborator. He had a group, a team, you know, of, you know, his cameraman, his, his production designer, people that he had worked with for years. And he wanted everybody, even the extras, to be sort of part of the collaborative process. You know, he liked to get things on the first take. He liked it to feel fresh. 
and for it to be kind of, you know, alive on, on camera and on set. He wanted like a family uh, around him, which makes sense with what he came from. Right. But he had no like sort of... Uh, um, trustworthy ensemble, yeah. I, I, he didn't have the same kind of like persnickety, obsessive, auteur personality that even like Lloyd and Chaplin had at the time. There's something so fascinating about the way that I think Keaton really thought of himself as like a craftsperson and not some hoity-toity artist. Artiste. Right? Yeah. 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 He didn't have that pretension about him, even though he cared a lot about getting things right. But uh, th there's there's the gag in Three Ages in the modern segment where he tries to make the leap from building to building. And yes, I wanted to make sure we talked about that because it's one of the great stunts in his entire career. It's so even incredible. though the movie is weak, it's worth yes. it for that moment. Yeah, the fall, you... I don't know. It seems like it should be dead. You, you like, know the story behind yeah. it, right? Do you know this, David? No. I mean, it may be in the research, but no, I don't know. Assume I know nothing. Okay. <laughs> I know the guy had a stone face and yeah. there's trains in his movies and I've seen Flat like hat. four of them. You, you should know. read a book, man. I, I know. I know. Well, this is the thing. I'm going to read everything once we've done this series. I wanted to watch the uh, movie. Do you want to tell this story, Dana? Yeah. I mean, you can jump in, but I mean, yeah. essentially that that gag, the roof to roof jump or that stunt rather, yeah, um, which like is an jumps, elaborate multi-part stunt. Right. right. He jumps from roof to roof, doesn't make it, hits three on on the way down. John Wick quotes that later on, by the yeah. way. I can't remember which Your one of them. Your piece on that was very... Uh, that, Chaz Tehelsky was so fun to talk to about uh, Keaton. Yeah. So, so then, And then he grabs the, the drain pipe, right? Yes. The drain pipe then kind of flops down lever style against the building, pitches him through a window. <laughs> he then happens to land in a firehouse, slides through the firehouse dorm, goes down the hole and the pole, right, that yeah. you have to have in the old-fashioned-y firehouse, and then lands on the truck just as it's pulling out. So right. it's this whole great um, Rube Goldberg with yes. him as the projectile kind of gag. Now in but the it was script, all an accident. Yep. In the script, David, he's he supposed to make it. Lands the jump. <laughs> and he, Which should also be impressive. Because it's a pretty big jump. But he <laughs> like actually fucks up and uh -huh. falls and is out of commission for like two or three days, right? Yeah, he hits a net, but he gets injured enough that he takes a few days off. And that's when his gag writers say, hey, I think we can use this piece of footage and right. turn it into this that's extended gag. So when he's basically recovering from the fall, they go like, well, the footage is so fucking good. We right. just watched this. The fall is so funny. It would be stupid not to rewrite the next five minutes of the movie around the fallout from the fall. And That's it's like that crazy. sort of looseness, you know, and just like when you get something that works on camera, you go with it. I, you know, I, I, there's the similar gag in uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, where he when he Tom Cruise similarly yes. injures himself for real, trying to make basically the exact same leap with very similar framing. And you hear interviews with Macquarie. We talk all the time about when he does these three hour long Empire interviews whenever a new one comes out. The way those movies are made are kind of the only films that are made the way Buster used to make his movies, where it's like we have locations, right. we have cast. We have stunt professionals. We have people who know what they're doing. But and like how did things they, can be improvised. But, but, I mean, how did they extend that accident and make it look, He's turn it smaller, into a longer I mean, he stunt. basically, because he, rather than making the jump, he like goes into the wall and he grabs it, but he doesn't land on it. And then they play the rest of the thing with him sort of limping. Limping. It's a um, smaller adjustment, yeah. but when they talk about those movies, they, like, don't have a traditional script in place, per se. Ah, they I didn't cast know that. Very Ketonian. To yeah. fulfill, and they always, like, the first four Mission Impossibles, they would try to write a proper script, and it wouldn't work, and they'd be rewriting stuff on the fly. And basically, when Macquarie comes on, he was like, we have to stop trying to control this in advance. And now they go, like, find me some good locations. Tom, yeah. what are stunts you've always wanted to do? 
let's start planning these. And then in real time, we're going to watch footage and go, what we could use here is a scene connecting these two characters in between. Oh, this thing turned out well, so let's write around this now. And those movies are very organically developed around great places, great set pieces, great sort of larger concepts that then they find the narrative to weave in between. Interesting. Well, you know, Stahelski does exactly that with the John Wick yes. movies. And when I was interviewing him about the Keaton influence on his work, he said this sentence that was almost verbatim the way that Keaton talked about scripting his movies mm. in advance, which was we get the beginning and the end and then the middle will work itself out, you know, yeah, and, right. and he didn't even realize that he was quoting the Keaton practice. And Keanu is is so bustery in those movies. He, and just in general, like he he is a great stone face. Yes. Yeah. No, I think he's a big been. fan. Uh, clearly. I believe and it. he actually I don't know if he's read it, but he is in possession of my book. <gasps> Hey, because I made sure it got to him when it came out. Because I yeah. just, yeah, he's one of the, I feel like he's one of his, part of the legacy in the modern age, along with Jackie Chan. Yeah, I, I saw so many people say about the fourth movie, like, oh, you can really feel like Keanu's getting up there in age. It's hard for him to walk. And I'm like, I think that is a conscious decision because the first the movie. The character is tired. Like, right. is that what you, yes, yes, right. exactly. You, yes. It's like, it's part of this thing of like, this very subtle, innate how do you make sure the audience is still on this guy's side kind of thing that Buster Keaton had in his bones as well? Of like the first movie, you set up the paradigm of dead wife, dog gets killed, car gets stolen. We're going to root for this guy no matter what, right? Three movies later, we've watched him kill a billion people. We're pretty far away from both of the traumatic deaths. At some point, does this guy start feeling unlikable? Does he start feeling too high status? And it's like, no, you have to, like, adjust in real time. The more tired he seems, mm. the more broken he is, mm. the more honest he is in his emotions, the more we're still going to root for him. Um, uh, other gags I like in Three Gages. Yeah. Uh, well, the dinosaur. The dinosaur is incredible. Thank you for reminding me. Here's a, here's a take. I want to hear if you agree with this or not, sure. Dana. Uh, and, and this was a thing that crystallized in the way you talked about uh, in your book. Uh, the actuality is how much movies at the time were about seeing things. Just literally, if you put a thing on screen that people hadn't seen before, it would blow their fucking minds. And so you basically have like two languages developing in cinema in the early days, which is sort of the Lumiere. Let's just show you life as it is. Let's show you different places. Let's show you different things. Let's give you a slice of reality, right? This sort of jockey drama style being developed. And then you have Meliers, who is like a magician, who is using illusions and tricks to show you things that could never exist, that could right. only exist within this specific medium in this kind of way. And I think Chaplin and Lloyd are much more into the like creating a fantastical world around themselves where things like the clock and Chaplin going through the gears, you mm -hmm. know, or the roller skating sequence and city lights and the mall are based on, I know this isn't real. I know this is a setup device. But part of what you're enjoying is this sort of clockwork, the the craft of building this artificial reality. Whereas I think so much of Buster's language is shooting his movies like they are actualities, that they have a very unfussy style so that you're watching something that feels very similar to the actualities, the documentaries you'd be seeing at that time. Right. If, only, then, if only to prove it's his body really exactly. doing the stunts. And then something unbelievable happens in the middle of it. Three Ages kind of breaks that a little bit because it goes so far into the two earlier time Yeah, periods. well, that's why the dinosaur, although it's fun to see because it's early animation, is very un, very un-Keaton-esque. Yeah. It, right. It's like... Because it's a special effect. I love those 30 seconds, and then it kind of fucks up the rest of the movie. <laughs> I mean, even a moment, I think this happens when he's used as a kind of catapult 
right? Yeah. When he knocks out Wallace Beery because he's being catapulted somehow in the in the caveman section. You know, clearly something is that trajectory is not the natural trajectory of his body. And that's right. very unkeaton esque because yeah. he, he really did like to keep the camera far enough back and, you know, the special effects to a minimum so that you are aware, like somebody is really doing that. And it's really him that's doing right. it. Right. And, and, and the trickery he tries to employ, he makes invisible, you know, or if there is right. a special effect gag in a movie that was more apparent, it's something like Sherlock Jr. or the double exposures in Cameraman where that's part of the narrative is something weird is going on with the camera. You know, we're using the language that audiences know rather than trying to pull one over on them. This is also, it's a reference to Gertie the Dinosaur. Yes. A uh, cartoon from Winsor 1914. McKay. Right. It basically credit as the first major has, like, piece of screened animation. Right. It has, right? Like, a, is it stop motion? It was hand-drawn. It's hand-drawn. It's like it's very, very Oh, yeah, simple, I've seen that. Yeah. You know, created um, uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland. Right, right. Uh, but part of the thing Which was, of course, I was think, then turned into the biggest movie of 2022, Slumberland. Yeah. A movie that we all absolutely remember exists. That exists so much it hurts. Uh, I think part of this routine was Windsor McKay would go around and, and project this and interact with Gertie in real time on stage. That was sort of the trick of like, oh, my God, he's done this piece of animation that in and of itself is impressive. But it's also timed out with a routine where he can have some back and forth. That's and it, a whole cinema of attractions thing too, right? Absolutely. Narrated movies, which is right. just is something great that only existed for whatever, 20 years at the beginning of the medium. So they write this gag where Wallace Beery is on an elephant and they go, how do they one up an elephant? And he's like, a dinosaur. dinosaur. And yeah. his gag writers are like, Buster, what the fuck are you talking about? We can't have you ride a dinosaur. Maybe and he goes that. like, they were probably like, Buster, you're crazy. Yeah. And then he said, what the fuck are you <laughs> talking about? Uh, no, but he was like, I remember seeing Gertie when I was a kid. We can just do that kind of thing. A thing that is incredibly difficult to do and even right. more difficult to do in stop motion, which is a different medium. Right. Um, it, it took him 52 takes, apparently. Right, because it has to sync up so perfectly. Right. Um, I think he did love that kind of challenge, even right. though it's not very yes. typical of his filmmaking style. And if we talk about The Playhouse, his mm -hmm. short The Playhouse, you'll see him using, you know, I don't know what you call it, but masking, you know, yes. being able to redouble his own image in a way that was way more sophisticated than anyone was doing at the He's time. He's like, an, I think of him as like an engineer yes. on top of everything else. Right. But that's the difference. From this point out, it's like, I want to make a watch. I want this to be unfussy. Right. I want the mechanics to be hidden behind it. Right, right. I want right. Part it won't of the be showy. For the audience yeah. to say to themselves, there's no way that's a special effect. How is that possible? We should move on from Three Ages to our hospitality, unless there's anything else in Three Ages we wanted to discuss. I really like Chariot. Yeah. So it's, it, right, same narrative You like times. this gag very much. I like this gag the very much. Right. I, I think the the uh, the Roman narrative maybe. well, I, the Cayman has good gags as well. The modern one is the one that feels a the little. The modern one feels kind of flat. But it has some of the best jokes in it. it does have I think jokes. it's. I mean, it's got that roof jump that we talked about. Yeah, the jump is cool. And I personally, I think the scene in the cafe has a lot of great moments. I love the crab. I love when he gets yeah, drunk. The shaving, just the, how subtly he plays the drunk. That's pretty good, right? Stuff. The way you see how he, yeah. he he believes in himself the the minute yes. he starts getting drunk, right? That funny thing. I mean, you said in the beginning of that uh, that narrative where he's trying to understand how flirtation works by watching Wallace Beery and copying him incorrectly or getting too caught up in things. Uh, the chariot race, uh, it, they're using the actual L.A. Coliseum, which has just been built for the Olympics, right. which gives you so much fucking production value. Right. Like, you cannot believe how huge this thing looks and decked out with real extras. Um, but there's been a major snowfall the day before. So he has the idea to turn his chariot into a sled. Right. So he has, like, a, a, a dog sled 
So it really did snow in LA. That that. No, 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 no. That's a written gag. I think. I I believe. Yeah. That. Has oh, I thought you were saying he was using actual no, sorry. snow. I'm saying the character in within the within the film. Right. Yes, that's the thing. Uh, the the gag I love is the spare dog in the back of the chariot, which feels like another <laughs> modern problem for historical problem. How does he sort of have the foresight? And then there's also the sort of the holy shit aspect there where you're like, there's no big special effect there. But part of the laugh is, holy shit. So this whole take I've been watching, there's just been a dog hanging out there in the back. You know, in real life, he's just had a dog in that box. Yeah, he loved to work with animals. And actually, the the, the other stunt that really always wows me in the yeah. Roman section is that crazy moment when he rides a horse into a sort of an archway and then he shimmies up a pole that he's holding on the horse. It's all done in one take yeah. and goes into some sort of, you know, upper door and that that structure. I mean, that's just such a dangerous stunt. Yes. Uh, and our hospitality has the incredible dog routine. Um, but then the lion, I think the lion stuff is really funny, mm-hmm. but it's very similar to the dinosaur shit where it kind of kills reality where you're like, here's a guy in a lion costume giving a performance. It's a pretty good costume. I have to say, it's, the, fr- the, it's the Frank the Oz of the 20s. Great. That guy animates that lion but beautifully. This is the thing. Yes. I'm like, same way I feel about the dinosaur. I love this while I'm watching it. The craft of it, I think, is kind of incredible. He starts, like, petting the... He's like, I'm going to get right. a thorn out of the lion's paw, like, you know, in the story or whatever. Right, I'm going to yeah. do his nails, and that way he won't right. attack me, right. right? And then you see the lion sort of preening and looking out, checking out his own whatever. But... All of that's funny when I'm watching it. The moment it ends, you are sort of like, so this is now just anything can happen. Right. right. You're so untethered from reality. Yeah, the whole movie is a grab bag, basically, right? right? Versus watching him deal with a real dog where you're more impressed by every single thing that's happening because you can't believe he got it out of him. Right. Uh, And then it ends with the same sort of epilogue three times where, you know, he he beats Wallace Beery in competition. He ends up with the woman. And uh, they have a bunch of kids. Second narrative, they have a bunch of kids. Third narrative, they have a dog. I don't really get what the commentary there is. Might just be funny. Were people fucking less in those days? <laughs> like, I don't know what the... Early 20s? No, I mean, I families think... were getting smaller and people okay, were urbanizing. Sure. To the extent there's any kind of social satire in the movie, Child it's sort of that moment. on the way down. You don't have sure. to have eight kids anymore. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Our hospitality, immediately, he's like, I'm going to tell a fucking story. I'm going to make a proper I mean, Three Ages was also successful, right? Like, so it's sort of, it merits him as, like, you are now a feature director. You do not need to worry about this anymore. But basically, the reviews of it were, like, narrative doesn't really make any sense. It's not that engrossing. It succeeds as 60 minutes of funny shit happening. Who were film critics back then? And obviously, they existed, because D.W. Well, Richard Brody, obviously. But like, who are the like? Did you read criticism? Oh yeah, there's you know, two. Like, there's actually two chapters on the development of film criticism because once again, it was really in tandem with his life. You right, know, I mean, right. basically, film criticism at the beginning was just sort of noting that there was this weird thing called film, and you could go see it at such and such right, theater, time, right? I mean, yes. the the cinema of attractions yeah. was also there in the the coverage, right? It's, like, it's, what's yeah. so funny about early film criticism is half of the criticism is like. I'm still not convinced on these movies. Right. Oh yeah, right, and it right. goes like so they're late. Half reviewing the film they watch and half being like, I still think this might die out in two years. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's a guy writing on Chaplin, right. who I quote in the book in 1915, I think, right. during the year of Chaplinitis, right? That he becomes this huge global phenomenon of fame, and this guy is saying, not only I've never seen a Chaplin movie, I've never seen any movie, a fact of which I remain proud. You know, because right. he's a theater snob. I give B, I give three ages a B plus, movies a B minus. <laughs> <laughs> I remain unconvinced. 
But right around 1920, right when Keaton starts making his own independent movies, there's a whole chapter in the book on this critic, Robert Sherwood, who I consider one of the first real voicey. And you that know, is film a name critics. I know. I've heard yeah. that name. And he right, loved Keaton right. and was sort of, you know, implicated with his life, like failed, tried to write a failed screenplay for him that never got off the ground. But yeah, film criticism was just starting to take the form that we know it in And now. he's like, he's an Algonquin round table guy eventually. Yep, yep. I think, he's right? one of those wits. Um, our hospitality. Originally titled Head and South. Mm-hmm. It was a terrible title. Horrendous. Although Our Hospitality is also a terrible title. They say it once in the movie. Sure, I don't care. This is but, our kind of hospitality. But yeah. I, I mean, I guess it's sort of a joke, at least, right? Like, Our Hospitality is We're Going to Try and Kill You. Right. Yeah. Right? Is that the gag? The title yeah. was also just Hospitality at one point. Right. Which at one I point, think it was Hospitality. Blows a little better. Yeah. Yes, I would take that. Uh, and obviously, it's drafting off of the Hatfield McCoy feud. Right. That's a, which, here's a funny thing to think about. Go ahead. It, it just this thing that was sort of like loom large in culture. The East Coast, West Coast rap war of its time was uh, uh, Southern families fighting for generations, right? Like these were the original gang wars were just families who were like, there was some slight 85 years ago that hasn't even really been explained to me. But now because of it, our families will constantly be fighting each other. Um it is, I don't know. I Have you ever delved into the Hatfield McCoy? Did you Did you do it at all for the, you don't have to deal with that when researching <laughs> I may have read about, something about it. For it, me, it's just, it's a lyric from Lukenbach, Texas. That's, yeah, that's you know, and that's yeah. what it will remain. But whenever I try to read about it being like, no, come on, this is an interesting part of folklore. And you just start reading. You're like, this is so boring. Inscrutable. <laughs> Inscrutable. But basically, like, the Hatfields and McCoys. There's two families in the feud. South. They didn't like each other. They kept killing each other. Basically get settled in the 1890s. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's it's getting settled around the time that he's born as yeah, well. It's yeah. another thing that he's just born into. Of this is now legend, an insane thing to think about. He's making this film in 1921, 22. He films it. Uh, uh, came out in 23, right? 23. Yeah, yeah. So, so he's probably yeah. filming in 22 or 23. Uh, uh, the the Hatfields and McCoys uh, feud is finally like sort of yeah. passed to the wind uh, in like 1892. At the time he's making this movie, it's like as recent history as air is. <laughs> sure. Right. For us now. <laughs> right. It's his parents' life, lifetime. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know? That makes sense. So yeah. Sure. It's A, it's a thing that's been dramatized both like literally and sort of like more representationally, this type of thing going on culturally. He's picking a thing that has already been and will continue to be the meat of narrative dramatic films. And going like, I'll just slot the comedy into this, which is, I think, what he finally cracks on this film of, oh, give myself the bones of like a serious dramatic film. Give myself the proper arc and then put the gags in rather than trying to assemble this as a series of sketches. Yeah. And the beginning really speaks to that because it's just so odd that you don't see the adult Buster Keaton until almost nine minutes into the movie, yeah. right? And there's this dramatic totally prologue that could be D.W. Griffith melodrama. But that's like, you know, half of studio, big, uh, you know, high concept studio comedies are this kind of, we all know this, what if you place the wrong person in the right. center of that? Right, so the which, joke, even just seeing him appear for the first time is a joke. Which is a yes. thing I think he's kind of creating here. I mean, obviously, you know, people have done it in other mediums. Well, look, it's 1923, you're creating everything. Exactly. Like, you know, right, everything could be pioneering But, like, back this then, is the right. actual comedy. This is the genre riff comedy. You know, this is the sort of uh, uh, fish out of water, you know, placing in. But but in this sort of mod- postmodern way where it's like, this is someone more like 
the audience watching the movie placed into a movie. Which means he knows enough about his persona at that point that he realizes, oh, just my appearance will be a joke. Exactly. But I will say I was surprised that the first 20 minutes of this movie are very light on humor. Yeah. Like on like what I expect from Buster Keaton, I guess. Yes. Right? Like. You don't really start getting gags until the train, which doesn't really start until 20 minutes in and is like a 20-minute segment. Yes, and then the train is funny, but it's also just sort of interesting. Like, yeah. it's just sort of visually exciting. Well, there, like, I feel like you have to talk about his interest in period stuff, yes. you know, because it's looking forward to the general also, which will be a much more yes. uh, pristine period piece, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, there he's really trying to reconstruct Matthew Brady photographs from the Civil War, and he's paying attention to historical accuracy and all yeah. that. Here... He really is just playing with the past, you know, and I think that goes to his obsession with old technology I was talking about, right? Like, why does he set it in the 1830s? In part because it makes sense to have the Hatfield-McCoy style mm -hmm. viewed, but also just because he wants to show this crazy 1830s train, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, and and the, the great bike, you know, that early predecessor of the bike, which is... I think kind of anachronistic, like it actually would have been a little before that, but right. he just wanted to go back and look at these funny old machines and try to sort of recreate them and imagine their daily use. I think trains should be like that. Yes. There's, you know, they can be all terrain. It should it's just like, be a series of carriages. But like they can be on just the ground. Oh, sure. And then maybe they'll join some rails later or whatever. You know, like they can do it all. And there's an old guy on the back yeah, with the trumpet. Yeah, like feeding who's kind of to it. Doing yeah. a bad job. Right. Yeah. And he literally went back in, in transportation history and looked for the funniest train. Yeah. You know, it's not right. really it quite a, true it's to the got period. a lot of character. It's an English yes. train. It wasn't even in America, but he just wanted to find this goofiest looking vehicle incredibly he could. funny. I mean, David, you always uh, joke or perhaps uh, say more seriously than anything else you ever ever say <laughs> that if you were uh, an elected official, your platform. Trains. Right. You're just going to fix just trains. Cover the country. Just cover the trains. whole fucking country with trains. <laughs> yeah. Make everything run with trains. I mean, I'd probably get booted out of office almost immediately because I would start like seizing land. I'm sure. <laughs> be like, you can't run a train through here. But part of your pitch The is railroad that... baron exactly. of the yeah. 21st century. I'd be like, what's his name in the Gilded Age being like, no, my railroads will Andrew Carnegie. Yes. I'd have some big beard, you know. Part, part of your pitch for modern train reform is that there should always be a man with a Van Dyke goatee sitting on the back of the caboose, <laughs> on the roof of the caboose with a large horn, yes. falling asleep and failing to alert people. To <laughs> there needs to be a wrong. political cartoon of you sitting on top of the Capitol, <laughs> yeah. holding a bag of with dollar signs. Yes. Yes. Old man Sims <laughs> with his trains. It, my daughter, I have this, like, bag filled. I was obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine as a child, uh -huh. unsurprisingly. Yes. Right? Um, and I had this bag filled with Thomas trains, mm -hmm. which were, like, made of metal back then. I imagine oh, they are not now. You didn't even have, because I feel like I had the Brio ones, which were wood. Right, those are wood. No, no, yeah. these are, like, metal trains. Wow, those are deadly weapons. <laughs> they are. You can yeah. really, like, especially the big boys. Yeah. And you whip that at daddy's head. You're uh, down for the right. My yeah. daughter was playing with them yesterday. She's finally like seemed to, you know, interested by them. But also, uh, by the way, what did I get your daughter for her, her birthday? What, what did I get your daughter as a present for her birthday? Uh, why don't you just go ahead and brag about the uh, train set from Toy Story? Which she loves. It's check, check, check. Uh, it's got Toy Story Lego Toy involved. Story trains. Right. That's called a fucking hat trick. Um, <laughs> perfect gift. But those trains, like you said, those trains look like often look like this thing. Yes, I mean, this this thing. It that looks like in. a little child's uh, train set. Yes, where you're like, well, the car wouldn't actually look like that, just like hitched together to the other thing. And the fantastic joke that it goes at the same pace as the dog. Yes. yes. <laughs> 
they are very sweet together, um, though, on the train. Like, is, the romance is quite sweet. He's movie. basically doing, like, 30 minutes of setting up just this movie having a solid, dramatic, emotional foundation before he starts doing buster gags, right? Because, like, as we said, first 10 minutes is just world-building. Here's the feud. Here's the rivalry, which the very clever, with the very clever conceit of this woman takes her son out of it, Grows cross country, tries to start him anew right. without Getting knowing that he's from, part Yeah, of there's the whole prologue life. with the rainy night and all but that. But this is right. key to the Buster persona that he's finally nailing here in features of this guy can't know he's stuck in the middle of a fight, right? Sure. That has to be the thing that makes him so likable is that he's not trying to fuck with anybody. He's just trying to keep on living his life. Right. So you have 10 minutes of that, then 10 minutes where like, from the moment they finally cut to the grown-up son and you see it's Buster and he looks like Buster, it does immediately feel funny. You have to right. imagine audiences were just laughing at seeing him in this environment, even though it's still mostly just kind of like laying down tracks. In New York City. Yes. But it's like portrayed as like a dust bowl. Which like, is funny. Yeah. That's a DW Griffith joke, actually. The moment really? when really? the moment when the inner title says, uh, here's here's Times Square right. or whatever right. it was in eighteen thirty, mm-hmm. and then it says, um, based on an old print. Right. That's something that DW Griffith used to do to sort of prove his oh, bona fides like, oh, or something. Right, his right, his right, subtitles right. would say, Oh yes, this is based on engraving by so and so. I didn't get that joke. Okay, that makes sense to me now. Is Buster reading as not macho? I assume yes. Like was that part of his sort of persona here early on he's sort of slight yeah like is it part of the joke it's like wait this guy's gonna wander into it yeah i mean that was always part of his thing right and he's in that way is a predecessor i think of the kind of jewish lemiel in a way you know there's an early woody allen or a dustin hoffman kind of element to how he fits into the the masculine world right yes combined with this this sort of childlike innocence you know the the world is moving too fast yes. around him right yeah. he's kind of guileless right. i guess right but yeah you like second 10 minutes of the movie basically arranging the meat cute of the two of them ending up unbeknownst to them rivals from these two warring families in the same caboose train car and then you have like 10 minutes that is cutting in between train gags that really don't involve buster that directly they're much more him riffing on what could be funny to watch a train do how a train could move but it's not like they're buster stunts yeah i know again i feel like it's almost a mental sketch of the general right because yes. he's trying to figure out how can a train be a character which this right. train is but right. in the general it's the main character the title character the train is a character in this sequence but buster is fairly passive within it and then you're just cutting into the carriage where you're watching me cute stuff between right. the two of them you're seeing their charming relationship develop. It's but when they're asleep on each other's shoulders. Yeah. You have the great bit where he's trying to figure out how to put the top hat on with the low ceiling. And then it, when the car hits a speed bump, or the train car hits a speed bump, it goes down his head and he goes like, fuck it, I'm wearing the pork pie hat. Like, yes. I got to wear the classic Buster hat. Uh, basically justifying its own origin. But then, yeah, 30 minutes in, train arrives, everyone puts together, holy shit, that's the son from the rival family. Right. He finds the estate is just like this rundown shack. Yeah. Right. Yes. And and 30 minutes into a 75 minute movie, which the I guess film is, is also basically making fun of the Hatfields and McCoys, right? That is sort of like, why are you guys fighting over yeah, what, what is was clearly this? like just like Appalachian shacks, right. like or whatever, right? But the other family's totally well off. He's yes. totally oblivious. I think that was also the vibe. One of the one of the Hatfields and McCoys was poor and one was rich. Sure. Anyway, go on. Sorry. And the rest of the movie now is just he's crazy about this girl. Yes. He wants to spend time with and her. And she likes him. Yes. And they don't know all this other shit happening around them. And everyone wants to kill him. They want to kill him, but they can't kill him in their home. No. Right. 
That's their version of hospitality. Right. That's the one rule. So you basically have three reels setting up the reality of the movie, the dramatic stakes, all of that, right? Right. To then get to the point where you're now like, here's a good four-reeler, a classic Buster Keaton, everything's set up, the dynamic is clear, you know, here are his rivals, here's what they want to do, here's why he's oblivious to it. He's oblivious on multiple counts. And, and yeah, the humor in this sort of like, the maintaining of Southern hospitality, some idea of Southern hospitality, all they want to do is kill this guy but they can't do it at the dinner table. They can't do it on these terms. They have to get his attention over here. There's so much of the, um, I feel like a lot of the Buster character, I mean, we've talked about this in both of these movies, but like he, he's like a, a toddler who is mimicking the behavior of adults without totally understanding what it is. So much of the stuff once he's in the house of everyone sort of winking at each other and eyeballing each other, and he just starts copying that without quite understanding or, like, the never-ending series of handshakes, you know? These things where he's, like, there's some language being spoken between adults in these gestures and these behaviors that I don't understand, but I think I get it, and I'll just start doing it. It also really lends itself to farce, you know, the, yes. the, the kind of rule in the house that you can't kill anybody who's on the grounds. Just it's, it's, it makes the entire house into this stage set where it's sort of like every entrance into a door, exit, yes. right, has something to do with that that game. So even yeah. after he figures it out, then there's a new vein of humor of him trying not to leave, right? Yes, yes right. which is very funny. Well, he's just actually. better home. He loves it here. He's yeah, in love right. with this girl. <laughs> he's got a hut. Yeah, you mentioned John Roberts. I did not read it. So John Roberts, oh, Joe. Joe Roberts, sorry, yeah. uh, plays the sort of main Canfield, the main bully. The, right? He's the, the big guy. Yeah. yeah he yeah. died, like, right after this movie was made. Yeah, he. this is the last film he did with he Keaton after stroke. having been in Virtually all of his shorts. He's in all the shorts. He's right. in Three Ages, right? Yeah. He's one of the cavemen. He appears throughout. He's just kind of one of the go-to heavies, and had also been a friend of the whole Keaton family since Keaton's childhood because he was a vaudeville guy. Right. So yeah, it's 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 real sad for for Joe Roberts fans, and I think he's one of the great foils Keaton had in his career that he had a stroke during the making of this movie and uh, and died. I think shortly before it it was released. Yes, he had a stroke. He returned to set, finished shooting. And then suffered another stroke and died. Yeah, yes. basically it was the very, very last thing he did. Yeah, that's crazy. But uh, is... but he's the perfect foil for Keaton oh, in terms yeah. of size, right? And he also yes. just gets it. I feel like he he fits into those universes that Keaton creates, you know, in the way that his great leading ladies did and, you know, just some of his regulars. He's just... But... <laughs> just the thing of... In this one, obviously, he's got the whole get-up with the sort of whiskers and, the, sure. you know. But, like, when you look up, you know, like... Just put, they just knew back then to putting a hat on a guy was really, you know, all you needed well, to do. Well, the angle, the tilt. The angle of the hat. Yeah. He is, he's got this like square head, like a Frankenstein. He has tremendous presence, right? Yeah, I mean, even does. though he often plays the bad guy, there's something very lovable about Joe Roberts. Yeah, he's lovable. He's got a good face. His eyes are kind of, I don't know, like beady and like that, for some reason, that's kind of involving about him, maybe. I don't know. I mean, the weird makeup that they would wear. Also, him in the in the in the de aging <laughs> of the first prologue just yes. cracks me up in his curly wig. You know, the bewigged Joe Roberts. Um, but yes, he is he is very funny. Uh, Natalie Talmadge. So Natalie Talmadge is uh is who he wanted. Uh, to or no no sorry he wanted a different Talmadge in in Three Ages right I already forgot the he, sister right yeah yeah, yeah 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 but this is this is this, uh, is, uh, this is the one he's married to yes his wife yes and this uh, is her last movie ever. She's gorgeous. Yeah. 
She was also pregnant with their second child while making the movie, which he thought was a real mistake when he realized that, you know, she would be showing by the end. So she's like standing behind bushes and things like that. Also, their their first son is the baby at the beginning who plays the little Willie. So there's actually four Keatons in this movie. There's Natalie, there's Buster, there's little Buster, who's billed as Buster Jr. His name was Uh actually Joseph. Later changed to Jimmy because when they divorced, Natalie changed his name. That, they, <laughs> that is brutal. Yes. And there's also because Joe like, Keaton. Joe Keaton, right, Joe the dad, is, in this. is, is, is he, the engineer. He's, he's the, the grumpy engineer. train yeah. driver. This is oh, the one funny. with the most family. The most Keatons in it. Because, right, because yeah. the whole Joseph thing is some family tradition. So she once they divorced, they, he, she was like, I am removing our son from your I mean, it was just, it was, it was such a bitter divorce on yeah. her part that she didn't want him to have any part of his father's name. So his name became Jimmy Talmadge instead of Joseph Keaton. Yeah. And then wasn't there a thing that when the, when the sons reached adult age, they went to court and were like, we like double sign this name change thing. Right. Am I oh, wrong really? about this? I think I read that somewhere that, that she had sort of said, never mind, my kids are Talmadges now. They're not Keatons. And then when the kids hit their 20s, they like went to court and were like, we want to legally be Talmadges. We, we co-sign what our mother decided as, wow. as That may be the case. Because, yeah, I think it was yeah. one of those things where she, they were pretty much kept apart. I mean, he had the legal right to yes. see them, but, you know, she was, she was really vindictive about it. So it wasn't until their teens, mid-teens or so, that they reconnected with him. Yeah, I mean, they had, like, you know, uh, a marriage going from uh, artistic collaborators to then basically uh, uh, people who lived under the same roof in separate beds and didn't have much to do to each other to uh, people who, like, hated each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure in, in hospitality that you could call them artistic collaborators, you know? Like, sure. the fascination with Natalie is that it's their marriage is such a black box. There's yes. no writing she left behind. Mm. She didn't give any interviews about him. There's stories about her, you right. know, essentially hating him till the day of her death and trying to turn the whole family against him, but she never really said anything publicly about it. And so almost everything you know about her as a human being comes from watching her performance in this yes. movie, which is so opaque. She's not bad, no. she's but she pretty. does not engage with the camera, really. She's not no. the, the funniest of his leading ladies. You know, she doesn't get any chance to do physical but comedy do or anything like that. But have some warmth between the two of them yeah, at this point, I think which translates a, on screen. I agree. I think yeah. there's, a, there's a, a dramatic rapport there, yeah. you know. Um, but there's it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch yes. her and wonder what their marriage was like at this point because it's such a period of him being obsessed with work, you know? Well, yes. and also by all accounts, yes, he was not a precious artiste, but he was a workaholic. And then the thing that sort of takes their marriage from uh, uh, people on pleasant terms with each other who have drifted apart and don't have much in common to uh, active animosity and fighting was by all accounts his alcoholism, uh, which is very much him like fulfilling the cycle of his father. But it feels like he never seemed like, uh, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, like an angry drunk and more of a sort of sad sack drunk. drunk. Well, I also think in 1923, he didn't really have a drinking problem. I'm sure no, he was no, a I'm big social later. drinker, but yes, yeah, yes, it was yes. the, the drinking it, and infidelity was, and unhappiness came along with shift. professional unhappiness. Right, exactly. And with him, basically, maybe he, you know, ignored his family and drank too much the way most dads of the 1920s right. did. But the main thing throughout the mid-20s, I think, is that he found his true happiness in making yes. movies. Right. It's, it's in the 30s and the 40s when it just feels like he just gets defeated. By everything and just becomes like a sad sack. Well, and by 1940, though, (laughs) he starts to turn it around. And this is something I really wanted to emphasize in the book is that even though there is a really tragic chapter in the middle of his life, it is not at all the case that he just simply went downhill and drank himself to death. And in fact, his story ends up having a happy ending. The last 20 years of his life, he was basically kind of reclaimed, reappreciated. He obviously doesn't do work on the same level he did in the 20s, but it's like he's back on TV. He's in major movies. 
people like love him as a figure. Yeah, he never lacked for work after about no. 1937 or so, you know, but there yeah. were those dark, dark years in the mid-30s. But he, like later, he's like a mascot in those later things, like when he's in... Yeah, funny yes. thing happened on my way to the yes. farm or whatever. Yes, right, right, and and he'll have short run TV shows and right. things like that. He's around, but yes, when he shows up in those things, it's sort of more and like the like little a nod relic. to film history, right? Exactly. The yeah. sadness is that he didn't get much time behind the camera after that. You know, he was always yes, in, in demand as a performer. Once he got through his his worst drinking years, people always wanted him to perform in this and that, yes. whether it was live or on a screen. But he didn't get much of a chance to certainly do both at once, you know, which was his greatest skill always, that he's the guy in front of and behind the camera and having great ideas in both places. The fact that that skill was wasted for so many years is the saddest part. Yeah, they'd bring him in as like an older expert to be a gag writer for things, but his hands weren't really deeply invested in the thing. Or he'd be used as a performer, but in a way where it felt like they didn't really understand. It's a little similar to a lot of the American Jackie Chan movies, where it's like the entire way you're building this around him does not play to his strengths. And part of that was just where the industry was at, right? Because after sound came in, there just wasn't that freedom anymore. There was nobody except Chaplin because he was so wealthy he could afford to make movies every six years or something like that. Right, he didn't have to. But nobody had that kind of, you know, that that loosey-goosey, like crazy, make-it-up-as-you-go-along freedom that he had in the 20s. Yeah, I mean, Jackie Chan is in so many ways, like, you know, the modern era parent to um, uh, Keaton, especially in the way he made his own films and built his own industry and his own you know, sort of family of collaborators and all of that. But he talks about that so much where like when he would come over to the States, try to make American films and they'd be like, why can't you do the stunts that you're doing in the Hong Kong films here in these American films? And he's like, because I take three months to practice each stunt. And then I do 200 takes of it until the one (laughs) take that works out well. And you guys don't want to give me the time to do that. And I think Jackie Chan, it just kind of went like, look, if they'll pay me, I'll do this, whatever. I'm fine. Right. It wasn't. And he certainly was getting paid very well, and the movies were big enough that he didn't feel defeated by that. Keaton, as much as he did have a little bit of a renaissance in the last 20 years of his life, there's some sadness to the fact that no one ever just sort of went like, you know this better than we do. Right. Hands off. Try to do your thing again. And, and the limelight, the end sequence with Chaplin and Keaton together at the end of Limelight feels like the most pure Keaton you get in those final mm. 20 years. But that's because he's being supported by someone who still has the freedom to make things the way he wants to and is backing off and letting him kind of do his thing. Even there, though, and there's a bunch about this in the book, too, I find Limelight such a frustrating movie because it's this the only time the two work together in front of a camera, right? Chaplin didn't want to let him steal too much. It's just, yeah, it's it's hard to know exactly what went onto the cutting room floor, why the framing is the way it is. Even more than the editing, the framing of that Limelight scene bothers me because you don't see them both at once enough. No. Right. And it, so and the, and the whole interaction of two clowns on stage together, two great legendary clowns should be that they're aware of each other. Yes. You know, and, and giving and taking from each Chaplin, other. Like it, let him be Keaton more successfully than anyone else in decades, but also would not let him be the best that he could be. Because and by all accounts, the people in the shit. room, like the, yeah. the, the audience that was watching the filming of that limelight scene was like on the floor laughing yes. at the stuff Keaton was coming up with. And you don't see the mm. vast majority of it yeah. on screen. I mean, just quickly, Limelight is like... It's his swan song films, so Chaplin's right. swan song film came out a, in the 50s. About a sort of washed up performer trying to give it one last go. And Keaton is his former partner he hasn't talked to in years. And you finally get to the end set piece, which is like, they're going to share the stage. And it's great, but also it should be the greatest scene It should in be incredible, and instead it's sort of, right, interesting yeah. and pretty good. Yeah. And he weirdly won an Oscar for it 20 years later because the Oscars kind of fudged the rules and said it never came out in L.A., and now it's eligible. Yeah. 
Um, because he'd never won an Oscar. Yes, that was them. Um, this Weird final Oscar set piece of art the waterfall. The waterfall. Come, Come on, guys! What the fuck? How do you Come pull on. that off? How do you do that? Jason? I mean, even before the waterfall, yes. with this, there's the there's the nearly drowning sequence, which, is which also we have to funny. talk about, yes. right? Because we talked about the the fall not working or the jump not working mm-hmm. in in the three ages. Well, here there's an even closer call, closer shave that yes. he has with death, where the wire that was holding him, you know, when he's being washed by the rapids down to the waterfall, uh, the wire broke. So there's yes. this moment that he's, you know, going through the Truckee, I guess what, what I don't know what river it is there. It's near Truckee, California. It's the Truckee River. It's in it? somewhere near Tahoe. Mm-hmm. Right and they're real in, rapids. Yeah. They're actually dangerous. That's why he had a wire, right? Not mm-hmm. usually typically a thing Keaton would do. And, uh, and apparently it was, it was a really scary moment. And he, and he, had, he had already told them in advance, keep rolling no matter what happens, right? Mm-hmm. But they basically filmed him nearly drowning. Then he manages to grab onto a bush, which you see in the same shot. Yes. And the part I love of that story is that after, the, you know, they went down to get him. And I think he may have been, you know, he was maybe unconscious, but, you know, he was full of water and stuff. And when he sort of came to, the first thing he asked was, did Nat see? Like yes. he wanted to know whether his wife saw him, which you could read two ways. Did yes. she see because I don't want her to be worried or... Did she see because I want to impress her? And right, I think it was right. the latter, right? They said, I'm afraid she did. Right. And then he said, did you get it? Mm-hmm. And so once again, as with Three Ages, they use that footage, which makes it all the more exciting, right? I mean, of course, we don't necessarily know the wire is breaking, but if you know that and you watch it, you can see the moment that the kind of danger increases. There is, And there's the sense of panic to him, like grabbing things and, mm, yeah. You know, they were inventing a lot of stuff on the fly there. But like the waterfall itself is... In a studio, correct? Like that's I'm the uh, find, wait, wait, yeah. I think they yeah, they built the waterfall. They okay. built the waterfall over a, a tank, over a swimming pool. Right. They right. made a replica waterfall in a studio swimming pool, uh, which is pretty cool. And that's all a mat, beautifully painted mat right. in the background, which works really well. The effect still holds up, I think. Um, it does, which is always what's the there's some onset so- photos that are so worth cool. googling of that moment. You know, because not only can you see the setup and sort of how how they created the illusion of the waterfall. Yes. But you see that Keaton looks sort of scared. It's the moment right before he was going to do the jump, and he's tied, you know, at the waist and standing on this kind of wooden ledge. Right. You can see the artifice around him, and he does not look very confident about the jump he's about to do. It was dangerous. He ingested a massive amount of water doing it to the extent that they had to, like, get a doctor to look at him. I wonder if that was before or after the wire broke. I don't know which order they shot I, it in, they, but it would make sure you more apprehensive. Yes. Um, but right. Uh, because they had these like pumps, like pushing the water because, like, you know, pushing it back up or whatever. Uh, the fall was six inches deep and uh, he would get caught underneath it and it would just like pump water <laughs> into his mouth. Like, I mean, yes. don't mess with waterfalls, guys. Yeah, he's hanging upside who, down there for a minute. Like, hey, you go down there, it's scary, but then you pop up and you're okay. Like, no, no, no. It's funny how many of his worst injuries were caused by water, too. Like, water was always kind of Well, it's tricky. like the number yeah. one thing in Hollywood to this day is, like, yeah. if you're going to make a movie with water, like, prepare for nightmares, right. basically. Like, it's still the most difficult thing to contend with. Yes. And fake, yes. I guess. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. But I, I read somewhere that, like, the, the production onset stills from this were basically kept secret for decades. Because they didn't want to reveal how they did it. Right. Right. He right. was like, so, no, just let people buy into the thing. Right, right. Let it look real. I don't want them thinking of this as a special effect. But I think, yeah, it's like an incredibly sophisticated combination and- of massive sets, map paintings, forced perspective models placed closer to camera to build this out as a huge landscape. And the illusion is is perfect. And that yes. moment is, is it's completely not funny, right? The, it's it's, a, it's yeah, a pure right. thrill. It's like a Douglas Fairbanks, like swashbuckling 
stunt. And it's still, I mean, I've heard in the past year, people gasp, you know, at that at that moment yes. of the rescue. And of course, she's replaced by a doll at that moment, <laughs> yeah, which right. if you look closely, you can see like it's just a rag doll, around. but you're not looking at her. You're no. looking at it him. would be insane if his pregnant wife was being thrown down. Waterfalls. <laughs> yes, um, that's what Joe Senior would have done. Right. This movie was a huge hit, right? Like this is the movie Three Ages did well. This yep. movie did like colossally well, I think, right? Like this sort of yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, I think I think Joe Skank was very happy with it. Put it that way. You know, right. it gave him the freedom to go on and, and start to make bigger movies and build toward the general, which is sort of the most freedom he ever got to yeah. make a movie, the most money he spent. You know, I think for him creatively and professionally, that would sort of be the pinnacle, the general. He, and this is yes. what enabled that. Path. It was a point of pride for him that his films were cheaper than Lloyd's and Chaplin's, that he was sort of more focused and leaned over not indulgences in that kind of way. So I, you know, as much as he had a blank check, it's like he would only spend the money relative to how successful his last movie was in terms of what he felt was the responsible amount uh, to still make a film highly profitable. Right. Um, but yeah, it was it, still that that independent era where Joe yes. Skank is just happy that he's turning a profit. Right. You know, it's and it's only a few years later when Louis Mayer starts turning huge profits by using the kind of factory style yes. studio system that Joe Skank realizes, wait, there's real money to be had right, here. what am I doing with one guy? Uh, like, a yeah. crazy stat, they would shoot uh, this movie with two cameras side by side, mm. running concurrently, okay. so that they would have one negative for America and one negative for overseas. Oh, it's that just makes such sense. a physical that's, media moment, right? Where you so realize, funny. like, it really is just stuff in a can that has yes. to be mailed around. But right. sometimes when they, you know, because some of his movies had been lost and then they put them back together or they're cobbled together from uh, crappy elements. And, you know, they're constantly trying to come up with better versions, the best possible, most pristine versions of these films. And the 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 versions we have right now are generally really good and better than they've been in a long time. Uh, but when people are trying to compare elements, very often you're like, oh, this is off by two inches. Right. You know, we have like two different versions of this scene and one of them's from the overseas print and one of them is from the domestic print. Which one's the better one to use? Right. It's, yeah, a fascinating thing to consider. Um, now, cowards say that uh, there was not going to be a box office game. Cowards have said that. Um, but they were wrong. And can I call my shot? Uh, go ahead. I'm gonna nail these five for five. I don't think you're gonna. I'm gonna nail. Them. I know. All I have. These. I remember when these movies zero came of out. these. I remember when these came out. Um, I was a freshman in college. Three ages. Okay. September twenty fourth, nineteen twenty three. Okay. September twenty fourth, nineteen. Okay, so sort of a dead period at the box office. You're coming off of summer blockbusters, but award season hasn't ramped up. Okay, I think I can get these. Now, the number one film of nineteen twenty three, I will spoil for you because it's not on this list. Mm -hmm is uh, Cecil B. DeMille's original Ten Commandments, mm. the silent mm -hmm. uh, version of it, which um, I've never seen, although I've seen, like, some clips from it, right? Like, there's, like, some surviving, uh, or, I mean, probably, I mean, I more mean, like, I've seen the things that he then later replicated, yeah. you know. I think it, it's back in... Yeah, in, it, exactly. Yeah. I'm more, like, you know, I've seen bits of it. Um, um, I'm surprised they went the remake route rather than making a sequel. Mm, yeah. It just <laughs> added 11 Commandment. It would have been so easy to just totally. fucking up the stakes. Ocean's right. rules. Uh... I don't know how how am I supposed to do this? Okay, so Give the number hands. one film, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's new this week. It stars Alexander Carr and Barney Bernard. Okay, uh, it's a silent comedy uh, based on ethnic Jewish caricature, uh, based on a Broadway play of the same name. Okay, I'm gonna suggest, uh, I'm gonna guess that it's called Oigavalt. It's called Potash and Pearl <laughs> I should buy the remake rights to this. 
I was going to guess the Coens and Kellys, which was another series of that, the Irish Jewish comedy, but Potash and Perlmutter has that. There they are, Potash and Perlmutter on the screen at last. It's like one of those classic (laughs) early silent things where they're like, well, these guys have been tearing up, you know, Broadway for 20 years doing their shtick. This is all I'm saying. Barry Key again, Griffin Newman, Potash and Perlmutter. (laughs) It's ready to go. Um, So that's number one this week. All right, Mm -hmm. number two. It stars Pola Negri and Jack Holt. Ah, oh, fuck, I know this. Oh, I also want to tell you that yeah. uh, Potash and Perlmutter has opened to $86,000. Not bad. That's humongous, yeah. Um, and this is a film by, um, it's a remake of a Cecil B. DeMille film. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Uh, it's by George Fitzmaurice, the director, uh, uh, it, who, who made The Son of the Sheik, you know, which is a famous uh, Rudolph Valentino film. Son of the Sheik. Cheek. Yeah. Sheik. Based, on, based on a public domain thing? I don't fucking know what it's based on. I don't know. Is it, like, it's a, like, is it about Jesus? It's about a beautiful, it young South American woman, and she's been betrothed to Don Pablo, and she falls in love with a uh, New York City stockbroker. I mean, it sounds pretty good. It's called The Cheat. I mean, that's a good title. And uh, the poster uh-huh. is great because it's Polonegri here pointing. I mean, I assume at The Cheat. Uh, what kind of numbers was it doing? Uh, 218 grand it's made so far. Are we okay, talking, like next... five screens? Yeah, sure. The next one is a, uh, a Western, from okay. the sound of it. A silent Western. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess it's called Put Em Up. It's called mm. The Covered Wagon. I should always go with a the. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the. Uh, looks like a sort of, you know, expedition film. Covered okay. wagons. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have much for you on that one. Okay, the next one is, uh, all right. This is so, this is actually going to be really fun that we keep yeah. doing this. There were so many movies back then. They and just churned them out. 75% of them are lost of time. This one, there's I really there's nothing on it. It's it's directed by Charles Braben, mm. stars Corinne Griffith and Frank Mayo. It looks like it's set on a boat. Oh fuck. Uh which Resident Evil is this? Is this Afterlife <laughs> or is it Retribution? It's called Six Days. Okay. And the final film uh in the top five this week. Let me see. Yes, it's a uh, romantic drama directed by Alan Dwan, uh-huh. starring Gloria Swanson. Okay. The great Gloria oh, Swanson. Oh, well, Alan Dwan is a great director of that Which, time. of course, means that it was a Paramount film. Um, and it's got, it's a one, 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 it's a person's name. Yeah. Uh, is the title. I'm going to guess Samantha. Called Zaza. Well, that was not the game I was going to guess. And I, did you read Marshall Schaefer's, um, is that, is that his name, Marshall Schaefer? Uh, you know, the, um. Oscar book? What the hell is it called? No, not Marshall Schaefer. Michael Shulman? Michael Shulman. There you yeah, go. Marshall I reviewed Schaefer's it. another film. Mm-hmm. That story he has about Gloria Swanson returning to the Paramount lot for Sunset Boulevard. And she's sort of like mothballed at that point. Mm-hmm. And she's like, is, you know, is anyone even going to care about me? And she sees that her face is still on this big mural that's like painted on the side of the lot, mm-hmm. like at the front. And she's kind of touched. And the guy who painted that mural approaches her and he's like, Thank God for your face, because everyone always wants to be at the front, you know, all the new stars. And so I just keep you up there because, like, you know, everyone That's respects nice. it you. It settles the matter. You know, right, yeah. you know. And she's very touched by it. I'm surprised moment. that Six Days was such a big hit. <laughs> all right. <laughs> fucking, uh, Keaton's already done one week as a as a two-reeler, right? Why would anyone see a day less at a longer <laughs> running? That's a good point. Okay. It's a fucking rip-off, if you ask now, me. Now... Our hospitality came out only two months later, November nineteen twenty three. Gross 20% more, as JJ stat here, it did about half a million dollars, a little over. Uh so number one, of course, is a New York set film starring Marion Davies. Okay. 
Uh, people might know her. Here's what I'm going to guess it's called. Famously, you know, William Randolph Hearst's mistress. I'm going to guess that it's called The New York. It's called Little Old New York. Well, I was pretty close. Yeah. Uh, you've also got uh, a new film, a Western, about a real person. Okay. This one is Billy the Kid. You're close. Wild Bill Hickok. Oh, fuck. Okay, I'm going to get uh, one of these. I'm trying to think, figure out who was playing him here. I'm looking for partial credit. I'm looking for, to get yeah. enough correct. William Hart. In a wanton guess. A classic silence. Ah, off-parodied by Buster Keaton. Right. He was sort of like the John Wayne of his he day, right? He was the sentimental cowboy, the, yeah. the weeping cowboy. Right. Okay, Griff, you actually have will know and possibly has even seen the next one. Fuck, okay. It's an adaptation of a famous French novel. It's an adaptation of a Starring a, a, a master of the horror genre at the time. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Oh, it must have been... Um, um, uh, well, it's not London After Midnight, right? No. That's a lost film. French, French novel. French, it's not Phantom of the Opera. No, it's the other one. Fuck. Uh, oh, 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 the it's Bells. like Chinese Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> yes. The Hunchback of Notre God Dame. damn it. Okay. Yeah. Um, which, uh, that's kind of a famous one, right? He's got oh, yeah. crazy Quasimodo makeup he's on. He's the best, yeah, I mean, uh, he's the best version of all those monsters. He's the best Phantom of the Opera. Yes. Mm -hmm. Really another great rabbit hole to go down is see all of Lon Chaney's movies. Doesn't take long, and yeah. he's just brilliant beyond belief. He doesn't have that many, like, or that many or surviving that many survive. films. Right. He died fairly young. He right. died after only one sound film. Do you know London After Midnight, David? Uh, no. It is a completely lost movie that only stills exist for, but the character design is so fucking insane that people lose their minds about, like, God, we've got to find this Oh, I've thing. seen this design before. It's very cool with the top hat. And yes, the, yeah, the sort of stretched out eyes and cool. the creepy goblin teeth. Very yeah. cool. All right, now, number four, exciting news for you. Okay. The covered wagon is still in the top five. <laughs> wow. People want the wagon. Wagon, the sleeper hit of 23. Uh, and the number five is a... Uh, a cross-dressing drama, girl dressing as a boy. Okay. Uh, to I think, well, it looks like she wants to play the violin. Hmm. It's called. Do the, you have any cast the violinist. names? Uh, Anna Nielsen. Mm hmm. James Kirkwood. Tully Marshall. Is Anna it Nielsen? Called? She was a, a sort of a Greta Garbo ripoff Swedish star. Mm, yeah, I don't, she was. See, You're this right. Is, this is showing see, me. You see, know your silent star. Yeah. Well, but than see, I. I feel like this is this is showing me up as somebody who doesn't have a deep enough knowledge of non-comic silent films because I haven't gotten a single one of these. But that is such a it, like deep, deep well, yes. and it's partly it's barely it's like half artistic to understand these things, but half like historical excavation, right? Like, no, so like trying the, to find The comedy these... and the horror films are preserved more than the straight dramas, right. even it's though they true. were the biggest yeah, films. Yeah, straight though, dramas yeah. are boring. Well, si just silent drama has aged differently. I think yeah. it's still fascinating to watch, but it yeah. feels like a historical document. It's, it's yes. an artifact more yes. than anything else, right? Um, is this movie called... I mean, like, The Crowd is incredible, obviously. There are great... Oh, yeah. Dramas, I mean, so and, and especially in the late 20s, yeah. right? I mean, mm -hmm. all the Lon Chaney stuff, man, just so good. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go is ahead. it called The Violinist? No, it's called Ponjola. You never would have gotten it. Uh, so that's our box office game. Look forward to five more uh, editions of that. Can't fucking wait. Uh, <laughs> Potash and Perlmutter too. Potash Still and Perlmutter is really top yeah. to top. It's, uh, yeah. I hope I, we I see would... like Potash and Perlmutter go bananas and like, yeah. I don't know. They, I think how they... many of them did they make? They must have come uh, They, they did two sequels. <laughs> they did two sequels. Okay, don't tell me what the names are. No, I'm hoping they might come up. up. Yeah. In the third one, the S and Potash is a three. Uh, yeah, right, right. Yes, Potash and Perlmutter cubed. <laughs> Um, yeah, this ethnic Jewish, ethnic Jewish yeah. humor. That's really crazy. I, I would have made a fucking killing in this day. Um, all right. 
we have to be done. Thank God we're doing the next episode on a different day. We initially yes. were going to do these back to back, and then Dana realized Dana we're was quickly like, "That might be." Crazy. And you'll be able to hear that episode in four days, May eleventh. Patreon Buster Shorts. Uh, Dana, you're the best. Man, taping this show is one of the few podcast things I do that gives me energy instead of draining it away. Well, I love it. That's very nice to hear nice because to hear. drains my energy, yeah. but I'm glad we give people energy. Well, it's because it's your job. You know, I'm coming here for fun. Like I just taped my own podcast. That was draining. Yes. Love it, but it's exhausting. And then I come here the and I fill mind. the well up again. Doing culture gab fest. I'm I'll so glad you, to hear that. My, my mom is always excited when you're on the show. You're in the very limited group of guests that she... Uh, She'll listen. Uh, she tries to listen other times, but I think she likes it when there's an actual grown-up on the show that makes us behave. <laughs> like you and Bilga. Wait, now I feel like a school marm. No, you're no, not no, a school no, marm. No. We just no. respect you deeply. We respect you deeply. Want to not Your voice be actual annoying. Authority. Yes. I think, look, I think I think we meet in the middle here, right? I think you're like, this is fun. You guys are silly. And we we're like, oh, Dana's making us behave a little better than we <laughs> usually do. And it's a good meeting point. Uh, Dana, everyone should read Hammerman. Get the audiobook, listen to it, however you want to digest it. And also uh, Slate Culture Gab Fest podcast that you co-host. People should listen to that and, and read all the stuff you write at Slate. Yeah, all I can say is the actual life story of Keaton and his work and his historical context is just so much more than we could possibly scratch the surface of here, yes. even though we've been talking for so long. We've it's been, been so fun to talk, notes. but just if any of this stuff intrigues you, dive yeah. into that book, dive into anything else about him. Also, can I recommend a great documentary about Keaton? Please. Please. This is really good background if you want to dive into this whole series. Yeah. Your book is very, is has such broad context too, which I do That's feel the thing like I was like, so If you like this show, it's you are not just like, connoisseur of context. Buster Keaton was born, you right. know, yon day. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a biography. Right, it's sort right. of like a, yeah. a, critical, a critical exploration of his whole lifespan. It's placing him in a time. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the, the, the documentary, documentary to watch right. on him is on YouTube in three parts. It's a British documentary from the 80s, and it's called A Hard Act to Follow okay. by, um, by the great, great silent film scholar Kevin Brownlow. So you'll really see just clips of, of all this stuff, like images of him from childhood, just a lot of great background, and it's beautifully done. So Hard Act to Follow, watch Okay. It. Okay. It's probably like on YouTube. I mean, Absolutely. Yes. You just said it was on those YouTube. Those things are, yeah. right. Yeah, those yeah. All right. Well, you know what? I was well, looking it up. Well, you know what? We'll definitely have Marie post a picture of him in the beard balding as his kid. Because <laughs> yes, you gotta see it. Yeah, yeah. The upsetting miniature Irishman buster. Look, all, here's all I'm saying. We we can divorce this from the, the negative stereotyping of the Irish, but I think we should bring this look back. We can call <laughs> it something different. But I think little kids should have receding hairlines and chin strap like, beards. Like how this is an Irish guy. Like, yes. It's like, that's an Irish guy? Yeah. But like, that's the joke. The sort of old image of an Irishman. Yeah. You should have a big beard, is all I'm saying. <sighs> maybe I should. Big yeah, bushy should. beard. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I should. All right. Okay. We got to be done. Yep. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and posting a picture of Buster Keaton as a kid with a bald wig and a chin strap beard. Thank you to Joe Bone and Pat Reynolds for our artwork, JJ Birch for our research, which a lot of research necessary for this series, and he's done an incredible job on these dossiers and also somehow kept them shorter. Yes, good job. But they're uh, dense. JJ. Yes, nice Full of dense. good meat. Uh, thank you to AJ McKeon, Alex Barron for our editing. Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit, including our Patreon blank check special features. 
where we do franchise commentaries. We're doing the Planet of the Apes series right now, the classic Planet of the Apes movies. But also, as we said, we will have a Buster Keaton shorts. Dana's pick, a curated selection of Buster shorts episode coming up soon there. And now on the Patreon Griff, we mm-hmm. have a new option for yes. fans. This is an alpha test. Oh, baby. So it's a brand new feature on no Patreon. No betas allowed. Exactly. Basically an option for, for people to join the, our Patreon for free so they can stay updated on what's going on there without jumping in That's to subscribe, Basically, to, you know, to sort of get a sense of it. We've been unlocking episodes after two years and making them free, but that requires going to the Patreon page and looking up from the, when those things got posted and are now unlocked. And we've just, it, it's a streamlined process now. You can yes. sign up for a free membership. You'll get notified whenever an old episode gets unlocked for free. And you'll also get notified about new stuff. And if any of that tickles your fancy, you, you can get notified about new stuff. And if you, yeah, you could, then you can upgrade to paid to check it out if you want or yeah, whatever. Or whatever. But what's really nice is that, like Griffin was saying, with the process now, it's a little bit more, you know, labor intensive. Whereas home through the archives. Once you sign up for this free membership, you'll receive an email notification. That, I mean, right. this is the real And then thing. you'll be able to get the content. So if you want to listen to us talk about Iron Man 2 and without a care in the world of pandemics in our voices. I think we're up to pandemic now. I think, I think we now I think we're we unlocking pandemic episodes. We're actually in the Star Wars. Oh, so. oh okay. So not quite. I'm not about quite. to clog a toilet. Very shortly, we'll be doing Toy Story pandemic episodes in which everyone feels normal. (laughs) Don't remember any of that. Honestly, a lot of that is a total blank to me, but it exists and it's coming free because we make our Patreon episodes free. That that 2020 lineup, we got got Star Wars, uh, uh, Toy Story, Mission Impossible, Alien. It's good franchise. No, it is. Yeah. We have to do some of them again. No. No, we're being weird. Never going back. Tune in next week for... Sherlock Jr. and the Navigator. Ooh, look so at that. that's kind of a big one. Two fucking masterpieces. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, third yeah. time at bat, he makes ooh, one of the best films. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so tune in for that. Yep. Uh, and as always, I'm just calling my shot. I'm going to go five for five on every box office game for the rest of this series. <laughs>